this is unprecedented in the history of our country that uh, the uh, Biden administration is doing this. The FBI executed a search at former President Trump's Mar-a-Lago resort yesterday, drawing anger from his supporters. It's Tuesday, August 9th. This is WBUR's All Things Considered. Good afternoon, I'm Steve Brown. Coming up, we'll have the latest on yesterday's FBI search of Donald Trump's Florida home. Also, we'll hear from the lead researcher of the new If When Now report, about what the group found when looking back at cases that criminalized self-managed abortions since the year 2000. And fuel shortages have forced many Sri Lankans to ditch their cars and cycle instead. Colombo's mayor unveiled a new bike path. Doctors and environmentalists call it a silver lining, but will it last? It's 401, now this news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Lakshmi Singh. Revelations that the FBI executed a search warrant at former President Donald Trump's estate in Florida is sparking an intense defense in conservative media. NPR's David Folkenflik has details. In recent weeks, Fox News had distanced itself just a bit from Trump as the January 6th House Select Committee cast him in a harsh light. Now right-wing media voices, including those at Fox, have swung into full defense mode. They're projecting a dark and in some cases even violent tone. Conservative talk show host Buck Sexton called the search a preventative coup. Fox's Sean Hannity said President Biden was wielding the Justice Department against his most formidable election foe. Matt Schlapp, the chairman of the American Conservative Union and CPAC, wrote for Fox that the U.S. is now a third world country. Today is war, said YouTube right-winger Stephen Crowder. Loyalty to Trump, at least for now, once more, the paramount concern. David Folkenflik, NPR News. The latest turmoil surrounding Trump threatened to overshadow President Biden's victory lap today at the White House, where he signed the $280 billion Chips and Science Act into law. He says the massive investment in high-tech manufacturing is vital to national security. We need these semiconductors not only for those Javelin missiles, but also for weapon systems of the future that are going to be even more reliant on advanced chips. Unfortunately, we produce zero percent of these advanced chips now. And China is trying to move away ahead of us and manufacture these sophisticated chips as well. It's no wonder the Chinese Communist Party actively lobbied U.S. business against this bill. Throughout his remarks from the White House, Biden was struggling with a cough. The 79-year-old's doctor has said that Biden has recovered from COVID-19 and has tested negative multiple times for the coronavirus. Five people are reported injured, one person killed after multiple explosions rocked a Russian airbase today on the occupied peninsula of Crimea. From Moscow, NPR's Charles Maines has the latest. Eyewitness videos posted online showed massive plumes of smoke billowing from the Saki Air Base near Novofedorovka on Crimea's west coast. Russia's defense ministry said the explosions were caused by an accidental detonation of ordnance and there had been no sign of an attack even as local authorities called for an evacuation. Meanwhile, the location of the explosions on the Crimean Peninsula Russia forcibly annexed from Ukraine in 2014 immediately led to speculation Kiev had carried out its first major strike on the peninsula since Moscow sent troops into Ukraine in February. Authorities in Kiev had no immediate comment on the incident. Charles Maines, NPR News. Moscow. New Mexico authorities are reporting they've arrested a primary suspect in the killings of four Muslim men in Albuquerque since last November. The most recent deadly attack was Friday night. 
Police Chief Harold Medina wrote on Twitter, a suspect was found in connection with a vehicle of interest. It's NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR. Good afternoon. I'm Steve Brown in Boston. A jury has found a commercial truck driver from West Springfield not guilty for his role in a 2019 crash in Randolph, New Hampshire. That crash killed seven motorcyclists and brought to light the Massachusetts Registry of Motor Vehicles' failure to suspend licenses of hundreds of drivers who had out-of-state driving offenses. Todd Bookman reports. After hearing closing statements Tuesday morning, jurors deliberated for a little under three hours. They then returned a not guilty verdict for Vladimir Zukovsky. He had been accused of manslaughter and negligent homicide charges. Prosecutors claimed he was driving erratically and played a role in the crash when he drifted out of his lane. But an accident reconstruction expert pointed to skid marks and other debris, showing the lead motorcyclist lost control of his bike. He was also over the legal alcohol limit. Zukovsky has been held in detention for more than three years. As the verdicts were read, he gasped and pointed up at the ceiling. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Todd Bookman. State officials say there is a spotted lanternfly infestation in Massachusetts. It was discovered in Springfield last week. The invasive species can cause serious damage to vineyards, orchards, and other agricultural crops. Officials aren't sure the origin of the current infestation. Residents are asked to report sightings to the Department of the State Department of Agricultural Resources. Builders Beware Legoland Discovery Center in Somerville is closing in September for construction and improvements. The indoor theme park is getting a $12 million renovation. The attraction is set to reopen in spring of next year. Red Sox pitcher Chris Sale will not be back this season, but it's not because of the finger he broke during a game against the Yankees last month. The team announced today the left-hander fell off his bicycle over the weekend and broke his right wrist. Sale had ribcage uh, rib injury earlier this season and has been trying to make a comeback after Tommy John's surgery. Red Sox return home to Fenway tonight to host the Braves. In the forecast, a severe thunderstorm warning for eastern Norfolk County and central Plymouth County has uh, uh, been issued until 445. Storms were reported over Marshfield and Plymouth. It'll be mostly cloudy with a slight chance of showers or thunderstorms tonight. The lows will be around 67 degrees. Right now it's 87 degrees in Boston. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Progressive Insurance with Snapshot, which monitors safe driving habits to determine a personalized rate at Progressive.com, not available in California and North Carolina or from all agents. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Juana Summers in Washington. And I'm Elsa Chang in Culver City, California. It has been a day now since FBI agents conducted a search at former President Trump's Mar-a-Lago club and residence in Florida. Trump and his allies have lashed out at the Justice Department and the FBI over the move. NPR Justice correspondent Ryan Lucas has been following all of this and joins us now with the latest. Hi, Ryan. Hey there, Elsa. Okay, so I realize the dust is still settling from this FBI search, but can you just bring us up to speed? here on what we know so far at this point. Well, we know that FBI agents carried out this court-authorized search yesterday at Trump's Palm Beach uh, club and residence, Mar-a-Lago. Trump said in a statement that during the search, the agents got into a safe that he has there. Now, Trump was not in Florida when this happened. He was in New York. Uh, his son Eric was with him yesterday, and he says he got a call that the search was happening. Uh, here's a bit of what Eric Trump told Fox News' Sean Hannity. The purpose of the raid, from what they said, was because the National Archives wanted to, you know, corroborate uh, whether or not Donald Trump had any documents in his possession. 
Now, the FBI and the Justice Department are not commenting, but we know that back in February, the DOJ began investigating uh, the possible mishandling of government secrets after the National Archives retrieved White House records, 15 boxes of them, uh, that had wound up at Mar-a-Lago after Trump left office. Some of the materials in there, the archives say, was marked uh, as classified national security information. Interesting. Okay, so I want to ask about some of the language we've been hearing from Trump. He has called this FBI search a, quote, weaponization of the justice system. And Mm -hmm. now his Republican allies are saying similar things. But, Ryan, let's be very clear here. The FBI would have had to take very specific legal steps before they could even begin conducting a search like this, right? That's right. The FBI would have had to get a warrant from a federal judge to do this. Uh, Investigators would have had to go to the court and show that there was probable cause to believe that a crime had been committed and that evidence of that crime was where they wanted to search. So in this instance, at Mar-a-Lago. Even before the FBI tasted to a judge, though, something like this, searching a former president's home would likely have had to have been approved by officials uh, at the the very highest levels of the Justice Department. Uh, The department is not commenting on whether the Attorney General uh, Merrick Garland himself signed off on this. All of that said, though, this FBI search does not mean that Donald Trump is on the verge of being indicted. It's important to remember that. And it also doesn't mean that he necessarily ever will be charged here. Still, this is a very big step searching the home of a former president. A big step um, because the legal stakes here could be so high. But, you know, Ryan, there are also big political consequences here potentially, right? Can you talk about that piece of all this? Well, right. For, For years now, Trump has claimed that he's been unfairly targeted by the FBI and the DOJ. Remember, he calls the investigation into ties between his 2016 campaign and Russia a witch hunt. He's called it that way for years. Already with this Mar-a-Lago search, he's claiming he's being persecuted again, that Democrats are trying to prevent him from running for president again. But bear in mind, the director of the FBI is Christopher Wray, a man who Trump himself appointed. Uh, But Trump and his allies are condemning this search. Anyways, they, like Trump, are claiming that the the DOJ is being weaponized. House Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy, who is uh, likely to be speaker if Republicans win in the midterm elections, uh, he's promising to investigate the Justice Department. And hanging over all of this, of course, as I've as I've mentioned, is the possibility that Trump will decide to run again for president. Right. Okay. so this investigation into the potential mishandling of classified documents, it's not the only legal jeopardy that Trump's facing right now. Like there's also the investigation to January 6th. Just round it up. What else is he facing at this point legally? Right. The big one on people's minds relates to January 6th, to the attack on the Capitol that day and then the scheme to put forward a, a slate of fake uh, fake electors. We know that two senior aides to former Vice President Mike Pence have testified before a grand jury here in Washington, D.C. The grand jury is also expecting to hear from former Trump White House counsel Pat Cipollone. Uh, then there's a district attorney in Georgia who is investigating efforts to overturn Trump's loss in that state in the 2020 election. Uh, the New York State Attorney General have a civil investigation underway into Trump's business practices. And then on the congressional front, of course, there's the House Select Committee's investigation into, into January 6th. Uh, but the investigation now into the boxes of White House records and how they ended up at Mar-a-Lago, that's one that's flown under the radar for a while. It, though, has now moved uh, front and center with this FBI search. That is NPR's Ryan Lucas. Thank you, Ryan. Thank you. As we just heard, the Justice Department has not yet publicly commented on the FBI search of Donald Trump's Mar-a-Lago home. There have been calls for DOJ to issue some sort of statement. Let's hear more now from a former Trump Justice Department official. Sarah Isker was the director of DOJ's Office of Public Affairs, and she is now the co-host of the legal podcast Advisory Opinions. Hey, Sarah, thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. 
Can you offer us a little bit more insight into why you think that this Justice Department has so far been tight-lipped on what's going on here? Well, it's absolutely the procedure of the Department of Justice not to comment on, confirm, or deny ongoing investigations. That doesn't, of course, mean the department doesn't take steps like executing a search warrant that are seen publicly. Uh, But even at that point, you don't comment on it because imagine a situation uh, where the department says, well, we think this person committed a crime. It would upend someone's life. And then what if they don't find any evidence of a crime? Or what if they find some evidence, but not enough to sustain a prosecution? Or they simply don't have the resources to pursue it, even though they believe the person is guilty. This is why the department only uses its its court appearances to make public statements about ongoing investigations. On Twitter, you pointed out that former President Trump could take a step and release a copy of the warrant whenever he chooses. So I wonder, to your mind, does the DOJ undermine its credibility if details don't come out? Or is the onus on former President Trump to make details known if he really thinks, as Ryan Lucas has reported, that there was not a good enough reason for the FBI to have executed this search? I am surprised if all that warrant says is that they are executing a search for potentially classified documents and then the statutory citation for the mishandling of classified documents that the former president hasn't released that copy of the cover page of the warrant. Hmm. Um, it, it obviously then makes us wonder whether there is other statutory citations there or other things that uh, potentially were listed in the warrant. Um, but you know, the department, again, not commenting on it, is exactly along the lines that the department has has held for decades now. It is up to the person who is being investigated at that point. They get to speak. They get to have their day. They can release the warrant. They cannot release the warrant. The department will speak when they go into court for the first time if they indict someone. The former president and his team have said they did not get a heads up that this raid was coming ahead of yesterday. But given what we know about the department's previous probe of Trump's documents and handling of government secrets, do you think that this search warrant should have come as a surprise? I mean, I am surprised because we know about this meeting in June where the department was meeting with Trump's lawyers about this very topic, where Trump had been keeping those boxes before the FBI came to pick them up and they were returned to the National Archives. That would undermine any warrant um, about uh, you know, potentially the destruction of materials where they would need a warrant rather than a subpoena, rather than you know, asking nicely, um, which, again, makes me wonder what exactly is in that warrant? Uh, Because if anything, that would have undermined DOJ's evidence in that affidavit to support the warrant. Uh, I want to ask you about the politics a little bit here. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis is among those who support the former president's accusation that this raid was a, quote, weaponization of the government against former President Trump. Now, given that we do not yet know what was in the FBI's warrant, to your mind, is that a fair characterization? No, because neither side should particularly be jumping to any political conclusion until we actually know what this is about. Of course, as others have pointed out, uh, for Republicans to say they no longer care about the mishandling of classified information, that would come as news to Hillary Clinton and her campaign, of course. Um, And at the same time, you know, this idea that because someone held public office, even the highest public office in the land, that they're somehow immune from investigation or prosecution, uh, that's not the United States of America. That's not the rule of law. The other can be true, too, though, which is if you are going to investigate a former president to potentially bring charges against a former president, it better be real. It better be serious. They better have something. Uh, And I think we will find that out in the coming days and weeks. 
As you just heard NPR's Ryan Lucas tell us, this is still a very big and unprecedented step by the FBI. And some conservatives, including House Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy, are blasting this. How do you think that this is going to impact the standing, the reputation of the Justice Department, which has already seen its fair share of criticism, both when you were there during the Mueller investigation into Russian election interference, as well as criticism right now? That's exactly right. Obviously, the Department of Justice, the FBI, has become this focus of a political firestorm on both sides since James Comey first held that press conference about Hillary Clinton. And it's why I think both people shouldn't presume that the department did everything right here. People also shouldn't presume the department did everything wrong. You know, we have an inspector general report into the crossfire hurricane investigation, which is what the investigation into and Donald We should Trump just clarify is. here that that's the internal code name for the FBI investigation into Russian election meddling, just so listeners are clear. Go ahead. That's right. Uh, and that found several really serious errors in the FISA process, including a lawyer who fabricated evidence to include in a warrant uh, into an American citizen. So obviously the FBI has made mistakes. They've brought some of this attention and opprobrium onto themselves. At the same time, the FBI is an incredible group of men and women, uh, and the Department of Justice uh, is the shining example to the rest of the world. They do make mistakes, but they also get a lot right. Sarah, in about the last 30 seconds we have left here, I'd like to ask you, in your view, how is this all, given the the limited amount of detail we have now, how is this all going to play out with voters during the midterm elections? Well, I think that'll depend a lot on what the Department of Justice was looking for and what evidence they actually had to go looking for it. Uh, I think at this moment, it is um, uh, Republicans have a lot of momentum on their side heading into the midterm elections, and this will further solidify Donald Trump as the leader of the party if they believe he's being targeted mm-hmm. by the other side. On the other hand, let's see what the department has. All right. Sarah Isker was the director of the Office of Public Affairs at the Department of Justice under former President Trump. Thanks for being here. Thank you. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR and WBUR.org. Good afternoon. I'm Steve Brown, 88 degrees in Boston at 418. Ahead on All Things Considered, fuel shortages have forced many Sri Lankans to ditch their cars and cycle instead. The mayor of Colombo unveiled new bike paths. Doctors environmentalists call it a silver lining, but will it last? That's just ahead here on WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Eversource. Energy is at the center of how we live today, and with global energy prices increasing, the impact of families can be significant. Eversource may be able to help with their flexible payment plan options. For more information and to see if you qualify, visit Eversource.com. In business news, a Boston-based food robotics startup is reporting it's raised nearly $7 million in new funding. Dexi Robotics has made a robot that can do food preparation. The company launched in 2018. It says its technology is meant to help the restaurant industry address a labor shortage that has worsened in the pandemic. Wall Street stocks were down today. The Dow finished down 56 points, finishing at 32,776. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Tufts Medicine. It's not just medicine, it's Tufts Medicine. And innuendo. The Massachusetts sales tax-free holiday is this weekend. 
Hunter Douglas Automated Power View Shades at Innuendo Natick and Innuendo.com. Stay informed with all that's happening in the news. Go to WBUR.org or ask your smart speaker to play WBUR. In the forecast, mostly cloudy, slight chance of showers or thunderstorms tonight. The lows will be around 67 degrees. Mostly cloudy, cooler tomorrow. The highs around 76 with a chance of showers in the evening. Right now it's 88 degrees in Boston. This is WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Amazon Business. From small business to big enterprise and everything in between, Amazon Business works to help simplify the supplies buying process. Learn more at amazonbusiness.com. And from Fidelity Wealth Management, working to help investors keep more of what they earn with tax-efficient strategies at fidelity.com wealth. Investment minimums apply. Fidelity Brokerage Services, member NYSE. And from the Lemelson Foundation. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Juana Summers. And I'm Ari Shapiro. Since the Supreme Court struck down the constitutional right to end a pregnancy, demand for abortion pills has soared. In some states, using those pills or helping others could be grounds for prosecution. A new report says even before the Dobbs ruling, prosecutors were already going after people for self-managed abortion. Laura Huss is the lead author of the report. She's with If When How, a legal organization that supports abortion rights. Welcome to All Things Considered. Thank you so much for having me, Ari. So in this report, you looked at investigations and prosecutions going back to the year 2000. And what did you find? For the last two years, I've been leading this research um, where we've documented 61 cases between the years 2000 and 2020, where people have been criminally investigated or arrested for allegedly self-managing their own abortions or helping someone else do so. Preliminary research from this report found that among data available, the majority of people who were criminalized self-managed exclusively with medication abortion mm -hmm. and were living in poverty. People of color were disproportionately represented when compared to the larger population. And 74% of the adult cases involved the criminalization of the person for self-managing their own abortion, whereas 26% involved people helping others self-manage. And tell us about the laws that prosecutors used, because you found that many prosecutors uh, prosecuted folks under statutes that don't necessarily focus on abortion specifically. In fact, a very small number of states specifically have laws limiting self-managed abortion. So what were some examples of laws that prosecutors used? So today, only Oklahoma, Nevada, and South Carolina still have laws on their books that criminalize self-managed abortion. But cases in our research occurred in 26 states. So what this means is that overzealous prosecutors and police misapplied criminal laws to arrest people. Tell us some of the laws they used. What we've seen is that laws meant to address the mishandling of human remains, concealment of a birth, practicing medicine without a license, child abuse and assault, and murder and homicide were all misapplied to allegations of self-managed abortion. Many states, even before the Dobbs ruling, did have limitations on abortion, like late-term abortions were illegal in many states. And so if somebody did a self-managed abortion, ended a pregnancy at home, like in the second or third trimester, shouldn't a prosecutor be able to investigate and charge them for that if it violates state law regulating abortion? 
So in our research, we did find that among the cases where gestational age was mentioned, the vast majority of criminalized cases involve people in their second or third trimesters. But we as an organization think it's very important that people who have abortions later in pregnancy are not stigmatized and have support when and where they need it. It's one thing to be investigated or arrested. It's another to be convicted. What were the typical outcomes in these cases? In these cases, the vast majority led to an arrest. Um, of those, uh, and the vast majority proceeded through the criminal court process. Most cases ended with a guilty plea. Um, but then about a quarter were dropped or dismissed by either the prosecutor or the court, uh, really affirming the way in which advocates can challenge charges when they're misapplied. Um, but whether they were convicted or not, several people lost custody of their children temporarily or permanently. But then criminalization also led to people being shamed and ostracized in their communities, including needing to move due to threats at their homes or changing their names because they were unable to get or keep jobs. You've looked at the last 20 years and found more than 60 examples of people being prosecuted for self-managed abortions. That was under Rowan Casey. What do you expect the next 20 years to look like just in terms of numbers? Concrete numbers, I can't project. But what we've known is that new cases will continue to happen. So we're likely to see more and more cases of abortion criminalization. Um, and the cases from the last 20 years show us what happens when racist and unjust systems take hold of abortion legality. Laura Huss of the group If, When, How, Lawyering for Reproductive Justice. She is the lead author of a new report on criminalization of self-managed abortions. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. Sri Lanka is suffering its worst ever economic crisis. There are rolling blackouts, food shortages, and fuel rationing. But doctors and environmentalists say there may be one unexpected benefit, as NPR's Lauren Freyer reports from the capital, Colombo. M. Fernando used to catch a bus to his job as a security guard at a luxury hotel. But this spring, Sri Lanka ran out of U.S. dollars, struggled to buy fuel on international markets, and basically ran out of gasoline. Inflation spiked. And suddenly, even public transit became a stretch for Fernando's budget. Train and bus, very expensive. Yeah. Bicycle is free. Yeah, free. My, my feet are going. <laughs> So now 61-year-old Fernando cycles to work. His hotel actually gave him a bike. My uh, office, it helped. Your office helped you yeah, acquire bike. Yes, yes. Every day you come to work. It's it allows you to get to work. Yes, madam. Yeah. It's unclear just how many Sri Lankans like Fernando have switched to cycling in recent months. Bike salesman Asanka Pravat says his phone is ringing off the hook. Which would be good for business, except there's a problem. No bicycles? <coughs> no. You've run out? Dante is stock, no stock. He's out of stock. Sri Lanka's foreign currency crunch? Well, it affects bicycles too. Because most of the fancy mountain bikes Pravat sells come from abroad. And these days, it's much more expensive, if not impossible, to import anything to Sri Lanka. Now, there is one place where a shortage of imported bikes looks like an opportunity. Because the power cuts, we have the generator running at the moment. Oh, that's what this noise is? Yeah. This is a massive place. Like I Sri Lanka's biggest like... domestic bike factory. Manager Azim Miflal says his third-generation family business had almost gone bust, laid off almost all of its staff. But now he's hiring them back to try to double production to almost half a million bikes this year. 
He shows me his bestseller, a simple gearless cruiser with fenders. Ooh, I like the purple one. Yeah. Uh, more of a city bike, okay. and then we're looking at the traditional bike. Mithlal says Shimano gears and disc brakes are out. Simple, easy-to-repair bikes are in. Now, all of this is great news to Asela Abedira, a Sri Lankan doctor who's been preaching the health benefits of cycling to his countrymen for years. But he had trouble convincing them. There's a famous song, Bicycle is the Vehicle of Poor Man. That song affected the society not to cycle. Now it's changed. So much so that Colombo's mayor recently inaugurated new bike paths across the city. Because it's not the most bike-friendly place, Dr. Abira acknowledges. Those who are starting cycling, this is very challenging. Yeah, I mean, there's a train right here passing on one side. There's a bus on the other. Um, you know, it's, it's not a beginner's cyclist. And yet that same Colombo Coastal Highway is where I met M. Fernando, the first-time cyclist riding his bike to the hotel where he works. He has had what he calls a few incidents with motorists. Two incidents. Uh, yeah, uh, oh, you have a scar uh, here. Uh, small damage. But he keeps pedaling to get to work, to keep his job, to just keep going, which is what all Sri Lankans are trying to do right now. Lauren Fryer, NPR News in Colombo, Sri Lanka. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR and WBUR.org. Good afternoon. I'm Steve Brown. 88 degrees in Boston at 429. Ahead on All Things Considered, tennis star Serena Williams announced her plans to retire today. That's ahead here on WBUR. In the forecast, mostly cloudy with a slight chance of showers and thunderstorms tonight. The lows will be around 67 degrees. Mostly cloudy, cooler tomorrow. The highs around 76 with a chance of showers in the evening. Partly sunny with some showers on Thursday. The highs will be around 80 degrees. Partly sunny and 79 degrees on Friday. Again, right now, it's 88 degrees in Boston. This is WBUR. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by MathWorks, currently hiring for both technical and non-technical positions in their Natick headquarters. Learn more at mathworks.com careers. And Red's Best, with local home delivery and pickup at the Boston Fish Pier. Direct access to fish, shellfish, and sushi from networked fishermen. Red'sBest.com. Four Muslim men in Albuquerque, New Mexico, have been killed since November. Police believe their deaths are connected. The Muslim community is shaken. People have been very reluctant to attend prayer services. They have isolated themselves to the home, probably not traveling at night. A community in fear and in mourning. Tomorrow on Morning Edition from NPR News. Tomorrow morning at 5 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR News Station. Live from NPR News in Culver City, California, I'm Dwayne Brown. In Wisconsin, voters are going to the polls today in a pair of primary elections that could test the ongoing influence of former President Donald Trump. As Sean Johnson of Wisconsin Public Radio tells us, they include a primary challenge against a powerful Republican state lawmaker. Trump repeatedly urged Assembly Speaker Robin Voss to overturn President Joe Biden's 2020 victory in Wisconsin. Voss has repeatedly refused, saying it's impossible. Last week, Trump endorsed Adam Steen, Voss's primary challenger and a virtual unknown. University of Wisconsin lacrosse political scientist Anthony Chergoski says Trump may have made a miscalculation betting against the longtime incumbent Voss. 
I wonder if Donald Trump fully understands what he's getting into when it comes to taking on that organization. Trump also endorsed Tim Michaels in the Republican primary for Wisconsin governor over former Lieutenant Governor Rebecca Clayfish. She's endorsed by a long list of Republicans, including former Vice President Mike Pence. For NPR News, I'm Sean Johnson in Madison. Dangerous heat will continue to blanket portions of the northwest and northeast as the typical August warming trend gets into full swing this week. About 45 million people across much of the country are suffering through record-breaking heat. Meteorologist Frank Pereira with the National Weather Service says over the Pacific Northwest, temperatures are expected to moderate some over the next several days. We're specifically looking at two areas. One is across the Pacific Northwest. Um, that includes portions of eastern Washington State, eastern Oregon, into northern Idaho. And then in the eastern U.S., uh, mainly along the I-95 corridor from southeastern Pennsylvania up through the New York City metro into southern New England, including uh, Boston. He says heavy rain and flash flooding will continue to threaten the Ohio Valley into the central Appalachians. This is NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR. Good afternoon. I'm Steve Brown in Boston. A West Springfield, Massachusetts truck driver is being released from jail after a jury today found him not guilty of all charges in connection with the deaths of seven motorcyclists in a 2019 crash in Randolph, New Hampshire. The New Hampshire jurors returned their verdict for Vladimir Zukovsky this afternoon after just three hours of deliberations. Prosecutor John McCormick is disappointed. We uh, litigated hard. We didn't get all the rulings we wanted, but we, we litigated it hard. We respect the court's decision. We respect the jury's decisions. Zukovsky's public defenders argued it was the lead motorcyclist who was impaired and caused the crash. Earlier in the trial, the judge dismissed impairment charges against Zukovsky. Boston Public Schools is trying to hire for more than 1,000 open positions ahead of the school year that starts in one month. The jobs are a combination of full and part-time. The superintendent's office says with about 6% of all teaching positions are vacant. Mayor Michelle Wu says the district is working every day to staff up. 95% of the state is experiencing at least a moderate drought, and farmers are feeling the effects. Stacy Entel works at Heartbeats Farm in Berkeley. She's forced to use more well water to make up for the lack of rain. She says everyone should be mindful of water use because the well ran dry temporarily last week and really needing to be mindful about, okay, we have one well, <laughs> at least on this part of the property that we're relying on, and we can't tax it too heavily because it's not being replenished. The National Weather Service says the region is down about 10 inches of rain compared to last summer. The state is telling health providers to only schedule eligible people to receive the first of two doses of monkeypox vaccine for now. The Department of Public Health says it wants to give some protection to as many people as possible while the vaccine supply is limited. It's recommended the two doses be given 28 days apart, but the health department says the second shot will still be effective if it, if it is delayed. More than 170 people in Massachusetts have been diagnosed with the virus that can cause a rash and flu-like symptoms. Sports, the Red Sox return home tonight to host the Braves. The forecast, mostly cloudy with a slight chance of showers and thunderstorms tonight. The lows will be around 67, mostly cloudy and cooler tomorrow. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Nervive Nerve Relief. 
Nervive is designed to reduce occasional nerve aches, weakness, and discomfort in hands or feet. Learn more at NerviveHealth.com. And from the Nature Conservancy, partnering with communities across the globe to find solutions to the climate and biodiversity crises. Committed to building a future where people and nature can thrive. Learn more at nature.org. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Elsa Chang in Culver City, California. And I'm Juana Summers in Washington. Serena Williams is planning to retire from tennis, or as she told Vogue, she's, quote, evolving away from tennis towards other things that are important to me. Williams is a 23-time Grand Slam champion and one of the greatest athletes in any professional sport. While she didn't definitively say what her last match would be, it could happen at the U.S. Open, which begins later this month. Jessica Luther is a journalist and a co-host of the feminist sports podcast, Burn It All Down, and she joins me now. Welcome to All Things Considered. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks for being here. So let's just get right into it. The Vogue cover story. You know, I have to say, as I was reading it when I got to work this morning, I was really gutted when I first saw the story. But as I kept reading it and hearing her rationale and all the things she hopes to realize in her next chapter, I also found myself feeling sort of happy for her. Yeah, I'm thrilled. I mean, she talks a lot in the piece. She starts the piece of talking about wanting to grow the family. Olympia, her daughter, wanting to grow the family, having a sister. And yeah, you know, getting more into venture capitalism. And she's long had side projects, right? Fashion, jewelry, all these things that she's done. And she has so much in front of her. And you could really read that in the Vogue piece. Like, there's more to come from Serena Williams. Absolutely. I want to talk a little bit about her career because she is widely considered to be tennis's goat, the greatest of all time. What are a couple of the biggest highlights from a career that has shone so brightly for so long? I realize that might be sort of an unfair question. (laughs) It does feel unfair. I'll say Uh, twice she did what It's called the Serena Slam, where she won four of the Grand Slams in a row, not in the same calendar year, but four in a row. She did it in 2002, 2003, and then again over a decade later in 2014 and 2015. That's incredible. Uh, I want to talk about Australian Open 2017. She famously now beat Venus in the final. She was pregnant with Olympia at the time, two months. Venus knew that, but the rest of us didn't. And I find that entire match really remarkable because... You cannot talk about Serena's career without talking about Venus. Serena doesn't talk about her career without talking about Venus. There's something really beautiful about thinking about that's probably her last Grand Slam that she'll ever win. And it was a real family affair. Yeah, you know, the way in Vogue that she talked about her desire to grow her family, to have another child, I I was really taken by the way that she talked about how she loves being a woman. She loved being pregnant with her daughter, Olympia, but she also put out there quite clearly that for women in sport, they are presented with this incredibly unfair choice. What did you make of that? It just felt very honest to me. I mean, she wrote, if I were a guy, I wouldn't be writing this because I'd be out there playing and winning while my wife was doing the physical labor of expanding our family. And she is quite exacting, too, about the physical realities of all of this. The fact of going from a C-section to a second pulmonary embolism to a Grand Slam final playing through breastfeeding, postpartum depression... It's different for an athlete like her than it is for some of the men that she makes the comparison to. Absolutely. And I think it's important to reiterate, like Serena almost died when she gave birth to come back at all after that. And that was actually the second time she dealt with pulmonary embolisms in her career. 
that is an incredible physical feat all by itself. The fact that she went to four more Grand Slam finals after that happened to her uh, is just, it is so hard <laughs> to really quantify what Serena Williams has done in her career. It is spectacular. As I think about the scope of Serena Williams' career, I think about the generation of young women players, young Black women in particular, who point to Serena and Venus as their inspiration, who saw their presence on those courts as, frankly, revolutionary. You can look at tennis today and see the impact of Serena and Venus easily. <laughs> they have changed the way that tennis literally looks. Sloane Stevens, of course, Naomi Osaka, who has been very clear about the influence of uh, Serena and Venus on her career, Coco Gauff, Madison Keys, Taylor Townsend. I mean, we've had Vicki Duval, Jamie Hampton in the past. The future of women of color in the sport of tennis is so bright and the light that has shined the way has been Serena and Venus. You know, in Vogue and in other recent interviews, Serena Williams says she doesn't like to think about her own legacy, but I want to ask you about that. In 10, 20, 30 years, if I come back and you and I have this conversation, what are we still going to be talking about? What will people be remembering about her? Oh, I i mean, her legacy are certainly the 23 Grand Slams. I mean, she will forever be considered in the greatest of all time discussion. But I think we'll be talking about that amazing serve. She has the most perfect serve in tennis. It's powerful, but it's so skillful. The grit and the fight that is so breathtaking as a fan of sport. And I really think we'll still be talking about that. And also, of course, the shift in the tennis world, both who's playing tennis and how they're playing tennis. Jessica Luther is a journalist and a co-host of the feminist sports podcast, Burn It All Down. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you. Assateague Island is known for its wild horses. It's a barrier island that crosses the Maryland-Virginia border, and the wild horses that live on it span both sides of the island. But a large herd happens to live in the Chincoteague Wild Refuge, which is on Virginia's part of the island. So here's the thing. These horses are not actually wild. They are feral. Horses are not native to these beaches, and due to their slightly smaller size, they're considered ponies. No one's ever been 100% sure how they ended up there. The local legend is that a ship wrecked off the coast centuries ago and the domesticated horses on board swam to shore. But there's never been any records of that ship or any concrete evidence that this could be the case until now. One scientist in Florida may have uncovered a connection to the horses and their DNA, and it happened all by accident. Nicholas Dulso is an archaeologist at the Florida Museum of Natural History, and he actually studies cows. Cows, like horses and like many other domestic mammals, didn't exist in the Americas prior to the arrival of the Europeans. Delso decided to look into a fossilized tooth that had been with the museum since the 80s. It was originally ID'd as a cow tooth. But it actually belonged to a horse. So he ran some tests and compared it to other public data. When looking at the most closely related animals, we found out that the closest relative today were chincotic ponies. Actually, this fossilized tooth was discovered in an archaeological site located in Haiti, previously occupied by Spanish colonists. Now, this does not confirm the local legends, but this finding might give some credence to that shipwreck theory. The thing is that for a fact is that these horses, I mean, the Shinkotic ponies are very closely related to colonial horses from the Caribbean 
colonies, the Caribbean Spanish colonies. And archaeologists like Delso can learn a lot from discoveries like this. Through the archaeology, we're studying animal bones, but we're also using the, the study of animal bones to document human behavior in the past and human cultures. Pretty convinced that it will help us also better understand the place of and the role played by horses and, and potentially other animals in the colonial Spanish society. Now, before this finding, Delso had never heard of the Chincoteague ponies. So maybe another discovery he may have stumbled upon? A new research destination. I would love to see the, these horses someday. That's, that's, that would sound like a nice trip. I would be curious to see them in your natural setting. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Kenya has long been a great hope for democracy in a region full of authoritarian governments. But today's presidential election between establishment candidates was marked by low turnout and a great deal of cynicism. NPR's Ada Peralta reports. Even before the sun peeks out from the horizon, hundreds of voters line up at a polling station in Nairobi. Some have camped out here since 3 a.m., so when the polls open at 6, they use whistles and vuvuzelas to celebrate. Francis Onyango Lucas, who is 78, put on his fanciest white suit to come to vote for a new president. Kenya's longtime opposition leader, Raila Odinga, is running against the current deputy president, William Ruto. Elections, he says, are how you build a nation. This is one of the most romanticized images of Kenyan elections. It happens every five years. Voters are seen using flashlights to pour over the voter roll. They wait in long lines. They persevere, even through violence. At another precinct less than a mile away, it's quiet. The lines are modest when in past years they had stretched for blocks. I hear enthusiasm from some, but I also hear a lot of resignation. Peter Migosi says he wishes he was voting for change, but the history of Kenya has taught him otherwise. In Kenya, looking for a change is like looking for a gold in the sea. Mm. It's impossible? It's uh, impossible. Kenya has been a bellwether for democracy in East Africa. A dictatorship gave way to elections in the early 2000s. But since then, presidential contests have been marred by violence and irregularities. Wandi Njoya, one of Kenya's leading intellectuals, says this is the first time she's not invested in a presidential campaign. No, no, I don't believe in elections anymore. I think it's people who have to fight for what they want. She says Kenyans have long known that their politicians are corrupt and self-centered, but they always believed elections could change things. But in 2017, the international community hailed the elections as free and fair, and then Kenya's Supreme Court found that they had been massively rigged. Instead of fixing the problems pointed out by the court, the government reacted violently, crushing dissent and ramming through new elections that had no real credibility. And Joya says that's when she decided that the solutions to Kenya were not through elections, but through civic engagement. It became clear that the elections are not ours. Like Kenyans say, Kenya iko na wenyewe. Kenya has its owners. Even before polls close, life returns to normal on the streets of Mathare, a big slum in Nairobi. 
Kids jump rope. Hens take a walk with their chicks. Sam Papa, who is 27, didn't leave his store all day. He sells coal, so the years of soot have left the walls and ceiling of his store black as a night sky. He says every election period, politicians drop off money and promises. But after the elections, nothing changes. At the moment, he says, his neighbors can't afford the basics. They vote, he says, because the Constitution demands it. But in the end, he knows that Kenyans are on their own. Ada Pralta, NPR News, Nairobi. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR and WBUR.org. Good afternoon, I'm Steve Brown. 89 degrees in Boston at 448. Ahead on All Things Considered, we'll have a conversation with Republican Senator Tim Scott of South Carolina about his new book, America, A Redemption Story. That's just ahead here on WBUR. In the forecast, mostly cloudy with a slight chance of showers or thunderstorms tonight. The lows will be around 67 degrees. Mostly cloudy, cooler tomorrow. The highs around 76 with a chance of showers in the evening. Partly sunny with some showers on Thursday, a high of 80 degrees. Partly sunny and 79 degrees on Friday. The weekend looks nice. It'll be sunny during the day. The highs will be in the low to mid 80s. And right now it's 89 degrees in Boston. This is 90.9 WBUR. WBUR supporters include Semester Off, an education and wellness program in Wellesley helping college students get back on track through academics, executive functioning, coaching, and yoga. SemesterOff.com. Cityside Subaru on Route 60 in Belmont, where the Summer of Love event is underway, featuring the all-wheel drive Subaru Crosstrek. CitysideSubaru.com. And Comcast Business. Whether your business is starting or growing, Comcast Business is working to build a network to keep customers connected. Comcast Business, powering possibilities. In June, flooding closed Yellowstone National Park. The park means everything to this town, like the other community towns. So the minute the park opens, we're open. The minute it closes, we're closed. I'm Kimberly Adams, The Gateway into Yellowstone, next time on Marketplace. Tonight at 6.30 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Elsa Chang. And I'm Juana Summers. Senator Tim Scott, Republican of South Carolina, has this to say about his political future. I am only running for my re-election in 2022. Re-election to the Senate. I asked him about that when we spoke last week because a summary in advance copies of his new memoir, which is out today, said he was preparing to run for the White House. The book's publishers said that was their bad. Fortunately, they were kind enough to get it right by issuing an apology and recognizing their mistake. Almost seems like a fitting way to roll out a memoir titled America, A Redemption Story. In it, Senator Scott recounts how some vulnerable moments have shaped his worldview, like being raised by a single mother who worked grueling shifts as a nurse's aide, or the pain of struggling with his own self-image, which led him to an orthodontist's office at age 19, because, he said, it affected every facet of his being. From asking girls out to 
uh, being teased at school for having buck teeth. I know that it sounds kind of simple to people who can afford braces, but for me, it, it, it wasn't. It was literally going into an office with my knees buckling, asking for help, and then being treated with respect and dignity. But Scott also writes an equal measure about his confidence and what he calls his first presidential bid. That was to lead his high school student government association in 1982. He won, but he says at the time that he almost doubted whether a young black man in the South even had a chance. So I asked Senator Scott about his party today and whether he thinks we currently live in an environment where a black man could be the Republican nominee for president of the United States. My answer, the short answer is, is yes. Uh, my long answer is that we have to go back three years before I ran for president of student government and realize that in my eighth grade year, there were race riots at my high school. And to then walk into the school and three years later to become the president of the student government with a 70% majority white student body showed me the progress that can be made in very little time. I would say that the Republican Party today, I hope that we are all the great opportunity party, those of us who believe. And if you understand the evolution of the Southern heart that made the possibility of me becoming president of the student government, I hope that that same evolution has been manifest in the policy positions that I have fought for and have successfully accomplished on the Republican side of the aisle. I have to ask, though, you did say in 2022 you're running for re-election, but that next presidential election is in 2024. Any comment on that? I think you were right that the presidential election is in 2024. All right. I, I want to turn switch gears here a little bit and talk about policy. Throughout the course of your career, one thing that you've done again and again is speak out about people who do not get a fair shake from the U.S. justice system. You've talked about inequality, uh, even your own experiences of being pulled over while driving simply because you're a black man. And I I know, and I have followed closely your work on the issue of police reform, which you also write about in your book. There was a bipartisan bill that you co-sponsored after the killing of George Floyd, and that stalled late last year. I know that President Biden has signed since an executive order to enact some policing reforms. Where are your goals on that issue now? Well, I, I do think that we have made so much progress in the last 30 years. Um, frankly, we have made progress since the George Floyd incident. There is still progress to be made. The truth is, that America is becoming a more perfect union in the justice system. I want us to be perfect, and we are not there yet. Are there any legislative solutions that you plan to pursue or that you think could help begin to solve that issue, which I, I acknowledge is a large issue that cannot be solved by simply one bill? Yes, ma'am. So the legislation that I have been proposing and that I am now working on again uh, is focused on making sure that law enforcement has the resources to better equip their officers with the duty to intervene, think George Floyd, mm -hmm. the escalation, the necessity of body-worn cameras, think Walter Scott in North Charleston, South Carolina. When you think of those circumstances and situations with more training and more resources, and frankly, with consequences, I think we find ourselves in a better place for law enforcement and the communities where they serve.
I want to talk for a moment about your experience on January 6th, because you wrote about the tension and pain as you and your fellow senators took refuge in a Senate office building and the moment in which you called for Senate Chaplain Barry Black to minister to the group of lawmaker and aides who were gathered. And I'm wondering if you can tell us a little bit about what it was like inside that room. It was just chaos in the beginning. But one of the things that I loved about that moment was this calm that came over us as Chaplain Black led us in prayer. And what walked out of that room was a unified front to affirm the election. If you had been there earlier, several hours earlier, you would have thought we would never have left that room on the same page. But we decided that before the night was over, we were gonna finish the job. Senator, in the book, you describe January 6th as a tragic day, and I'm quoting you here, the culmination of individuals making bad choices. What do you mean by that? What I mean by that is that we saw the darker angels assembling together and breaching the Capitol. That should never happen again. I do think that we have to reconcile ourselves to what happened on January 6th, and we shouldn't downplay it, but we should also place the blame on those individuals who showed up with not only malice in their hearts, but their willingness to act upon that malice. Senator, I have to ask you, because you've written a lot and talked a lot over time about the power of one individual to change the course of events, did former President Trump do enough to stop the attack that day? I I wish he would have done more. I don't think we should blame him for the day, but could he have done more? I think the answer is he could have. Over the course of reading this book, the big thing that I came away with is that you're using your story and the stories of others around you and stories of people from history to uplift a message of redemption for this country. And so is there anything in your career or in your life that you are hoping for redemption on? I am trying to make sure that the second chance that has been afforded to me, A, by my mother when I was failing out of high school, she never gave up on me, B, by my constituents when I lost an election in 1996 and they gave me a second chance. And there are so many facets of my life, had I not been given a second chance, I would not be here with you today. And so what I'm hoping to do is to encourage all of us to look across into other groups and say, I'm going to give them a a second chance, or I'm going to provide them with a measure of grace, unmerited favor that they may not have earned yet, but I'm going to assume the best of them. I have benefited from people who saw something in me that I could not see in myself. And to that end, I hope this country lives to our highest ideal. South Carolina Senator Tim Scott is the author of the new book, America, A Redemption Story. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station and from the Nature Conservancy, partnering with communities across the globe to find solutions to the climate and biodiversity crises, committed to building a future where people and nature can thrive. Learn more at nature.org. And from UMA, a cloud-based phone service for businesses of any size that comes with an automated virtual receptionist video meetings, and mobility features to connect to customers and coworkers anywhere. More at OOMA.com. And from Paycom, a tool for HR and payroll, designed for productivity, 
allowing employees to perform their HR and payroll tasks in a single software. Learn more at paycom.com radio. This is 90.9 WBUR and WBUR.org. Good afternoon, I'm Steve Brown. 88 degrees at just a minute before 5 o'clock. Coming up on All Things Considered, as the FBI search of former President Trump's Florida home is sending out political shockwaves, the politics can cut a few different ways and fire up the bases of both parties. That's just ahead here on WBUR. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by Boston University's Metropolitan College, offering part-time and evening accelerated degree completion. Earn an affordable bachelor's in computer science or management studies in just two years. Learn more at bu.edu met. I'm Ideas and Opinion Editor Chloe Axelson, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. The FBI search of former President Trump's Florida home is sending out political shockwaves. The politics can cut a few different ways and fire up the bases of both parties. It's Tuesday, August 9th. This is WBUR's All Things Considered. Good afternoon, I'm Steve Brown. We'll have the latest on the FBI search of Mar-a-Lago. Also ahead, President Biden signed the Chips and Science Act of 2022 into law today. It allocates $53 billion in federal funding to manufacture semiconductor chips domestically. United States Secretary of State Antony Blinken is visiting both Rwanda and the Democratic Republic of Congo to try to cool tensions between the two countries. And the dominant issue in the Los Angeles mayor's race is homelessness, but a solution may not be in the mayor's hands. It's 401, now this news. Live from NPR News, I'm Janine Herbst. As Republicans pressure the Department of Justice to explain the reason for the search of former President Trump's residence in South Florida yesterday, that enraged Trump, who called it politically motivated. The White House says President Biden and White House officials found out about the FBI search from media reports. Spokeswoman Karine Jean-Pierre. President Biden has been unequivocal since the campaign. He believes in the rule of law in the independence of, Justice of the Justice Department investigations, that those investigations should be free from political influence. Jean-Pierre declined to comment, though, on whether the department should explain the reasons for its search. President Biden signed bipartisan legislation designed to boost computer chip manufacturing in the U.S. NPR's Windsor Johnston reports members of Congress gathered at the White House today to celebrate the bill, which aims to strengthen U.S. competitiveness with China. President Biden was joined by leaders of both parties to applaud the signing of the measure. Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer calls the bill the largest investment in science and innovation in decades. This is one of the most significant long-term thinking bills in ages. I firmly believe our grandchildren will work in jobs we can't even envision now because of these great investments. The Biden administration says the bill will create roughly 40,000 new jobs with the promise of tax credits for companies to manufacture semiconductors. It also includes additional funding for scientific research and development. Windsor Johnston, NPR News, Washington. 
After a lengthy legal battle, a three-judge panel of the U.S. District Court of Appeals ruled that former President Trump's tax returns can be handed over to a congressional committee. NPR's Kelsey Snell reports the committee says it expects to receive the documents immediately. Democrats on the House Ways and Means Committee first requested Trump's tax data from the IRS in 2019. Trump and his lawyers have argued in part that the request was politically motivated and retaliatory, a claim the court rejected. The House Ways and Means Committee, which oversees tax policy, has a rarely used legal right to request private taxpayer information. The court found that the committee's request for Trump's personal tax returns and data from his trusts and limited liability companies was for a legitimate legislative purpose. Trump and his legal team still have the right to appeal, though lawmakers on the committee say they are confident they will receive the documents quickly. Kelsey Snell, NPR News, Washington. Wall Street lower by the closing bell. The Dow was down 58 points to end the day at 32,774. The Nasdaq down 150 points at 12,493. The S&P 500 down 17. You're listening to NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Good afternoon. I'm Steve Brown in Boston. A West Springfield man has been acquitted of all charges in a crash that killed seven motorcyclists. Today, a New Hampshire jury found Vladimir Zolkovsky not guilty of negligent homicide and manslaughter. Prosecutors argued that he veered his truck into a group of motorcyclists back in 2019 in Randolph, New Hampshire. The defense argued the lead motorcyclist was intoxicated, lost control, and slid into the defendant's truck. The crash put the spotlight on the failure of the Massachusetts Registry of Motor Vehicles to suspend Zukovsky's license for a prior out-of-state arrest for drunk driving. Senator Elizabeth Warren says Massachusetts is in a good place when it comes to abortion rights. Governor Charlie Baker today held a signing ceremony to mark the new state law that expands those rights for residents. But as WBUR's Amanda Beeland reports, Warren says there's still more that can be done. Senator Warren tells Radio Boston the future is unclear in a post-Roe world. But I always want to sound the warning about no one is sure what will continue to unravel. For her, this means taking on so-called crisis pregnancy centers. Warren says they often misrepresent themselves as providing abortion services when they don't. She points out the centers aren't bound by health care privacy laws. They can do anything they want with that information, including giving it to other states if someone, say, came in from Texas in order to receive an abortion here in Massachusetts, in order to harass a person. Warren says she hasn't visited or been invited to visit a pregnancy center. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Amanda Beeland. Boston Mayor Michelle Wu says she's only following the law by proposing pay raises for city councilors, department heads, the mayor, and the mayor's cabinet. Wu says the city requires a compensation review every two years for employees not covered by collective bargaining. She says the pandemic has delayed the study. So it's been a little while since any of those salaries were adjusted. We have proposed adjustment based on the, that re- research, comparing to what other cities provide, comparing to cost of living and, and other things in Boston. Wu is recommending 11% raises for the mayor and city councilors to take effect after the next election cycle. It's up to the city council to act on the recommendations. Sports, the Red Sox return home to Fenway tonight to host the Braves. In the forecast, mostly cloudy, chances some showers or thunderstorms tonight. The lows around 67 degrees. Mostly cloudy, cooler tomorrow. The highs around 76 with a chance of showers in the evening. Partly sunny with some showers on Thursday. The highs will be around 80. Partly sunny and 79 degrees on Friday. 
Right now it's 88 degrees in Boston. This is 90.9 WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Procter & Gamble, maker of Align Probiotic, a daily supplement to support digestive health containing a probiotic strain developed by gastroenterologists with 20 years of research. More at AlignProbiotics.com. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Elsa Chang in Culver City, California. And I'm Juana Summers in Washington. The FBI search of former President Donald Trump's Florida home was unprecedented. And as you might expect, it is stirring up a political firestorm. After the search last night, Trump called into a rally for Sarah Palin, the former Alaska governor who's now running for Congress. Another day in paradise. This is a strange day. You probably all read about it. Well, I certainly did. And to help us all make sense of the politics of that search and what it can mean, NPR's senior political editor and correspondent, Domenico Montanaro, is here. Hey, Domenico. Hey there, Juana. So searching the home of a president or a former president, it's a pretty big deal. Yeah, I mean, it's an extraordinary step by the Justice Department, and there will likely have to be some further explanation of what the FBI was looking for or seized. And we know very little about that. You know, the Trump family says it was about documents for the National Archives, but we don't know that for sure, or if there was more that they were looking for. We haven't seen the warrant, and you'd think it's pretty serious that there would be a compelling reason for a judge to authorize this kind of a warrant. But we don't know. And, uh, you know, though that's not stopping Republicans from jumping to conclusions. They're accusing the Justice Department of playing politics here. Uh, You know, and yes, this is unprecedented, but so is Trump. We've never seen a president do what he's done or tried to do with power. Former President Trump is the subject of multiple investigations, both at the federal and at the state levels. And yet he is still heavily signaling that he will run again for president in 2024. What could all of this mean for his political future? Well, first, like with most things Trump, it's firing up the bases of both parties. Democrats are glad that Trump, in their view, is finally getting what he deserves. Uh, But Republicans overwhelmingly rallying around Trump at a time when Democrats have had some momentum recently. And Republicans think this could motivate their voters. For example, there are primary primary elections today. And in Wisconsin, a Trump-backed candidate for governor, Tim Michaels, was using this to try and get out the vote. Here's what he told reporters. It's scary to wake up this morning and see that the, the, the government has raided the house of the former president. If they can do it to the former president, they can do it to anybody, and that is very concerning. What can you do about it today? Today you can go vote and let your voice be heard. Yeah, Trump has built his political brand off of grievance and his own victimhood. It helps him motivate voters, helps him raise money, and Republican strategists expect him to do the same with this. They think it'll actually boost him just when his once ironclad grip on the Republican Party had appeared to be loosening after that first round of January 6th committee hearings. Okay, so their view is that Trump could actually benefit from this, but is there a chance that this could actually wind up hurting him? You know, I think it's really going to depend on uh, what the FBI was looking for or got out of this search, because frankly, Trump has hit a string of bad news lately, court losses, more investigations, his image being dented by that January 6th committee. So it's possible when all the dust settles on this, that Republican base voters will think that Trump is just too much of a risk. And that's in addition to the fact that if he were to win the presidency in 2024, he'd be 78 years old, politically weaker than a first term president because he'd only be able to serve one more term. We've already heard a great deal of reaction from elected officials. House Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy wants to investigate the Justice Department's moves here. 
What do you make of the response among Republican electeds? Well, it really just shows how much Republican elected officials don't want to upset Trump's base despite any potential wrongdoing. Now, not every Republican is jumping to rally around Trump. Kentucky Senator Mitch McConnell was asked for his reaction to the search, and this is what he said. I'm here today to talk about uh, the flood and the recovery from the flood. Yeah, so the, the deadly flooding in Kentucky is a far more pressing local issue. But McConnell is the Senate Republican leader and has a prominent national role, so his non-answer is pretty notable there. You know, the House is a different story. With Republicans there, it's all MAGA all the time, and you can bet if they do take over the House, they're going to launch investigation after investigation into mm -hmm. the Biden administration, whether it's about this raid, Hunter Biden's laptop, or anything else. Uh, but Republican reaction here shows once again that they're more faithful to Trump than a key U.S. institution that's vital to democracy. NPR's Domenico Montanaro, thank you. You're welcome. All right, stop for a moment and look around your car, your desk, your kitchen. How many high-tech gadgets do you see? I mean, look, your, your laptop, your cell phone, your TV, all of those things, they need semiconductor chips in order to function. And most of those chips are not made in the U.S. Now, the Biden administration is determined to change that. So today, the president signed the Chips and Science Act into law. It allocates more than $50 billion to bring semiconductor chip manufacturing to the U.S. and away from its current production hub in East Asia. Joining us now to discuss the CHIPS Act is Saurabh Gupta. He's a senior Asia-Pacific policy specialist at the Institute for China-America Studies. Welcome. Thank you for having me on the show, Elsa. Well, thanks for being with us. So just to start us off, Saurabh, can you just paint a picture of, like, the worst-case scenario if the U.S. didn't start manufacturing more semiconductor chips and then suddenly stopped getting them from Asia? Where would we find ourselves? Life would come to a standstill uh, if we don't have the, the chips, which is like oil. It is the, the, the resource that runs our electronics and effectively that runs our life in many, in many ways. I mean, a car has hundreds of chips in them, and we are not talking of the most sophisticated cars. We're not talking electric vehicles. We're talking your average car. We're talking just television sets, something as straightforward as that. You know, the kids are going, the, the gamer kids are not <laughs> going to have much of their entertainment Good if the point. chips don't come. Exactly. And so, but what the chips also do is provide the foundation for a lot of innovation, next generation innovation, what has been dubbed as the fourth industrial revolution. Right. Okay. So in your opinion, does this CHIPS Act go far enough to prevent this potential slowdown if it were to happen one day? Like if the U.S. is so far behind its competitors in the semiconductor chip manufacturing area, is this legislation kind of too little too late, you think? No, I wouldn't characterize it as too little too late. It is sufficient. There is a lot of money, and a lot of it is front-loaded, literally $19 billion front-loaded in this next uh, next 12 months uh, to support uh, chip manufacturing in the U.S. But we don't need to have all chips or a very significant number of chips made in the U.S. We just need a certain amount of chips which will not hold the U.S. in a situation of blackmail 
or in a situation of of peril if there are if there is a war in East Asia or if there are others, just general supply chain snafus. Okay. Well, that's very interesting. You know, while this legislation is being touted as a way to shore up the U.S.'s position in the semiconductor chip manufacturing area, this is a law that is very much trying to curb China's influence in this area, right? Like, do you think it effectively does that? It absolutely does that, but uh, it doesn't necessarily curb China's influence. It forces China to be able to come up with greater indigenous innovation to catch up with the U.S. in terms of, and its East Asian peers, in terms of chip manufacturing. But let me ask you about other parts of East Asia, because I'm wondering, is there a concern here that as the U.S. is trying to undercut China or limit China's influence in the semiconductor chip manufacturing area, that it is hurting say, Taiwan. Yes, East Asian manufacturers are conflicted with regard to uh, the CHIPS Act and having certain certain disciplines imposed on them in terms of expanding capacity in China. But that having been said, uh, they value the importance of the United States. And so the way they are trying to proceed going forward is mm-hmm. asking the federal government, the U.S. federal government, to allow them to continue to produce legacy chips in China, Hmm. chips which are not cutting edge, while they will produce the cutting edge chips in their home countries and in America, so that that technology which goes into cutting edge chips does not bleed into China and enhance China's productive capabilities in any way. That is Saurabh Gupta of the Institute for China-America Studies. Thank you very much. You're most welcome. A recent UN report found credible evidence that Rwanda is involved in military operations in eastern Congo. Secretary of State Antony Blinken is visiting both those countries this week and trying to ease tensions, as NPR's Michelle Kellerman reports. A huge billboard with Blinken's picture greeted the motorcade as it wound its way through Kinshasa. The president of the Democratic Republic of Congo, Felix Chisikedi, hosted a dinner for the U.S. delegation on the banks of the Congo River. And Foreign Minister Christophe Lutundula spoke about a close partnership. During a very, very turbulent time, he said at a joint news conference. He's worried about the conflict in the east, and he wants to see Rwanda face sanctions for supporting a rebel movement known as the M23. Secretary Blinken is urging all parties to stop cooperating with M23 and other rebel groups. All countries have to respect their neighbor's territorial integrity. This is a proposition that we take very seriously around the world. We spent some time talking about that when it comes to Ukraine. It's equally uh, important here. Blinken has been reluctant to specifically criticize Rwanda, his next stop. His aides say he wants to be a, quote, reliable interlocutor. And as one aide puts it, the conflict in eastern DRC is a long-running challenge with no easy solutions. There are many other topics on Blinken's agenda, from the fight against corruption in the mining sector to the protection of one of the world's largest rainforests. In short, uh, what happens here is felt in many places. That's why the work that our countries do together is so important. The U.S. also wants to make sure the DRC holds credible and timely elections, expected next year. Michelle Kellerman, NPR News, Kinshasa.
You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR and WBUR.org. Good afternoon. I'm Steve Brown, 89 degrees in Boston at 519. Ahead on All Things Considered, details of an extensive investigation into the Trump administration's family separation policy. That's ahead here on WBUR. In business news, Logan Airport has launched a new rewards program for passengers. Massport says the free program will let travelers earn points every time they shop, dine, or park at the airport or use the Logan Express bus service. The points can be redeemed for gift cards, ride-hailing credits, or prizes. You can sign up using the Fly Logan app or online. Wall Street stocks were down today. The Dow finished down 56 points at 32,776. NASDAQ was down 151 points at 12,494. Funding for WBOR's business report comes from Vertex, where cell and genetic therapies teams are working for people and families living with sickle cell disease and other serious diseases. Committed to helping you make a difference and shape the future at Vertex. Career opportunities at vrtx.com. Coming to City Space tomorrow, August 10th, the primary debate with the candidates for Massachusetts Attorney General. Free in-person and virtual tickets at WBUR.org slash events. In the forecast, mostly cloudy with a slight chance of showers or thunderstorms tonight. The lows around 67 degrees. Mostly cloudy, cooler tomorrow. Highs around 76 with a chance of showers in the evening. Partly sunny and some showers on Thursday. The highs will be 80 degrees. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Amazon Business. From small business to big enterprise and everything in between, Amazon Business works to help simplify the supplies buying process. Learn more at amazonbusiness.com. And from Fidelity Wealth Management, working to help investors keep more of what they earn with tax-efficient strategies at fidelity.com wealth. Investment minimums apply. Fidelity Brokerage Services, member NYSE. And from the Lemelson Foundation. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Juana Summers. And I'm Ari Shapiro. The Trump administration was known for immigration policies that were chaotic and extreme. Yet even by that standard, family separation was in its own category. Kids as young as infants were removed from their parents at the border, more than 5,500 children total. Hundreds are still not reunited. Caitlin Dickerson chronicled those policies in real time, first for the New York Times and now for The Atlantic. And her latest cover story for the magazine is an exhaustive investigation into how the family separation policy came about. Caitlin, good to have you back on All Things Considered. Thanks, Ari. The Atlantic describes this as one of the longest stories it's ever published. You spent a year and a half working on it. A lot of it focuses on the inner workings of the governmental bureaucracy. So to start, tell us why this kind of authoritative account is important to have. Well... The idea to separate families, it's the culmination of an approach to securing the border that the United States government has taken really since 9-11. And it escalated over time alongside rising border crossings until you get to the Trump administration, which was very focused on trying to curtail immigration, both illegal immigration as well as asylum seeking. The reason this exhaustive an account was necessary was because it's the most extreme implementation of consequences. And some families, hundreds of them, still have not been reunited today. To give us a sense of what it felt like, can you tell us about a woman named Alma Acevedo who worked with an organization in Michigan called Bethany Christian Services? 
Sure. So Alma was a caseworker at a facility in Michigan where many of these separated children were dropped. And she's trained to work with traumatized children. She has a lot of experience, but she and other caseworkers said this was unlike anything they'd ever seen. Kids were completely inconsolable. They couldn't do anything other than play movies to try to keep kids calm. And she had no idea when they were going to be reunited. So to go into the bureaucracy where this policy took shape, you basically say there were two kinds of people, the careerists and the hawks. What role did those groups play? So it was no surprise that you know the hawks, like Stephen Miller, were going to push for these really aggressive policies. But it's actually the bureaucrats, the career experts who went along with zero tolerance and family separations, who are really important. They told me they were very concerned about separating families, but they stayed quiet. And when I asked why, they said, well, it wasn't strategic to speak up in these meetings. Or, you know, I couldn't alienate myself before Stephen Miller, given how much power he had in the administration. They figured someone else would intervene. And because of that, this policy was put into place. So as you describe it, Stephen Miller at the White House was relentlessly pushing for this policy. He did not speak to you for this story. Somebody who did speak to you at length was someone who kind of became the face of the policy, Homeland Security Secretary Kirsten Nielsen. And you write that throughout her tenure, she'd be accused by administration colleagues of being a squish, meaning not a true conservative. And each time she'd go a little further to appease her critics until eventually, you write, she followed them off a cliff. She told you in your reporting that she wishes she had not signed the memo authorizing family separations. How do you understand her role? So Kirsten Nielsen was the highest ranking law enforcement official responsible for this policy. There's no way around that. But she didn't have good information when she made this decision. Someone like her comes into this role anticipating that Stephen Miller is going to be exerting pressure from above to impose these harsh immigration policies. But it's the head of ICE, Tom Holman. It's the head of CBP, Kevin McAleen. Customs and Border Protection, yeah. Thank you. Career immigration officials who said to her, not only is this a good idea, but we have systems and processes in place to ensure it's going to be implemented smoothly. And that wasn't true. And based on their advice, she made that decision. There were so many things that the administration could have done to implement this in a more organized way. Like, why wasn't there an Excel spreadsheet, a document saying, here's where the parents detained and here's where the child has been sent? It would have made reunification so much easier. Why wasn't that done? The best answer I have for you is that anyone with that consideration in mind, reunification, they weren't allowed into these discussions. So Kirsten Nielsen, as DHS secretary, was being assured, it's okay, it's fine, we have a system, we have a process. And meanwhile, people within the bureaucracy who could have implemented that process and developed it, they were left out of the discussion. And when they raised red flags and said, hey, we're not ready to do this, they were completely ignored. I want to try to understand where the people pushing for this policy were coming from. And I think perhaps the most vivid defense of it came from a man who actually first floated it in the Obama administration. He was acting director of Immigration and Customs Enforcement named Tom Homan. What was his rationale for why he thought this was a good idea? Tom Homan joined the Border Patrol in his early 20s. He's been in immigration enforcement his entire adult life. And he tells a story of in the early 2000s being called to the scene in South Texas of migrants in the back of a tractor trailer with no air conditioning. Many of them died, uh, suffocated. And, you know, his response to that was to say, I have to stop this from ever happening again. His idea was let's introduce a consequence so severe that no one wants to take their children on this dangerous journey. You know, what he's missing, though, 
is that the system has actually been shown to increase these dangerous measures that migrant families take to get to the United States. You know, you don't get into the back of a tractor trailer and try to sneak into a country if you can go in the front door, if you can apply for a visa, or if you can wait in line and be processed in in a safe and humane way. And so he's got this laser focus on minimizing border crossings, but he only sees this one solution, which is punishment. There's one detail that you weave into the beginning and end of this article. You describe doing interviews with former Trump officials who were involved in family separation. And over the phone, you hear them interacting with their own kids, saying, I love you, or giving them their lunch, or getting them off to school. You could have written the story without those details. Why'd you put them in? I think that they reflect why this moment in immigration enforcement and in American history is so worth remembering and paying attention to. People's kids are the centers of their lives. And, you know, they came up constantly in my interviews with people who would have to, you know, reschedule a conversation because they had to help their child who had to, you know, put me on hold or give me a call back because they needed to go pick their child up from school. Then we would jump back into these interviews talking about life-altering moments for the children and families who were separated at the border. And it was as if these officials couldn't see the connection that I so clearly did between their own children and and those who were impacted by this policy. You describe this policy as a chapter of U.S. history, but as you chronicle the ongoing trauma that people subjected to the policy experienced, as you chronicle the desire by some former Trump administration officials to see this policy implemented again in the future, I wonder if history is really the right word. It's very much not history. You're right, Ari. There are over 150 children whose parents still have not been found by the American government and and hundreds of kids who still haven't been reunited. Therapists who are helping those families that have been reunited to move forward say that they're in the very beginning stages of something that is just immensely destructive for the kids who were in this very early stages of development in many cases when they went through this This is going to be a lifelong story for them, and we're going to be hearing from them for many decades. Caitlin Dickerson's cover story for the latest issue of The Atlantic is published under the headline, We Need to Take Away Children, The Secret History of the U.S. Government's Family Separation Policy. Thank you for your reporting. Thank you so much, Ari. This is NPR News. And this is 90.9 WBUR and WBUR.org. Good afternoon. I'm Steve Brown. 90 degrees in Boston at 529. Ahead on All Things Considered, Fox News has begun to distance itself from Donald Trump recently as the January 6th panel cast him in a harsh light. The FBI rating of Mar-a-Lago has right-wing media, including Fox, snapping back to his defense. That's ahead here on WBUR. It'll be mostly cloudy with a slight chance of showers or thunderstorms tonight. The lows around 67 degrees. Mostly cloudy, cooler tomorrow. The highs will be around 76 with a chance of some showers in the evening. I'm Asma Khalid. As a political reporter for NPR, I talk to people around the country about their lives and their needs. And I believe there is one thing we all need, a news source we trust. Tens of millions come to NPR for exactly that. When you donate your old car to this station, we'll turn it into tomorrow's news, the news you trust. Here's how. Learn more at WBUR.org cars.
Live from NPR News in Culver City, California, I'm Dwayne Brown. Police in Albuquerque, New Mexico, say they've detained the primary suspect in the slaying of four Muslim men. The murders have caused fear in the local religious community there. From member station KUNM, Nash Jones reports. Albuquerque's chief of police made the announcement on Twitter, saying officers had located a car they believed to be connected with one of the recent killings. Police previously said they're still trying to establish definitive links between the killings. Three South Asian Muslim men have been shot and killed in the last two weeks. A similar homicide occurred in November. The department had released photos of a gray or silver Volkswagen sedan Sunday, asking the community to be on the lookout. Police say the driver of that car is the primary suspect in the killings and has been detained. For NPR News, I'm Nash Jones in Albuquerque. President Biden has signed into law a bipartisan bill aimed at boosting domestic production of semiconductor chips, which power everything from weapons systems to medical devices and cars. The $280 million measure is part of Biden's push to make high-tech manufacturing more competitive with China. Speaking from the Rose Garden, he said it also means American jobs. There's analysis that says investment in the Chips and Science Act will create one million, more than one million construction jobs alone over the next six years, building semiconductor factories in America. The aim is to ease U.S. reliance on overseas supply chains that were strained during the pandemic. The White House says several tech companies, including Micron and Qualcomm, plan to boost their domestic manufacturing of memory chips. Stocks finished lower on Wall Street today after some disappointing earnings reports weighed on the tech as well as uh, travel sector. The Dow lost 58 points, down about one-tenth of a percent, while the tech-heavy Nasdaq dropped 150 points, down more than one percent. You're listening to NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Good afternoon. I'm Steve Brown in Boston. A jury has found a commercial truck driver from West Springfield not guilty for his role in a 2019 crash in Randolph, New Hampshire. That crash killed seven motorcyclists and brought to light the Massachusetts Registry of Motor Vehicles' failure to suspend licenses of hundreds of drivers who had out-of-state driving offenses. Todd Bookman reports. After hearing closing statements Tuesday morning, jurors deliberated for a little under three hours. They then returned a not-guilty verdict for Vladimir Zukovsky. He had been accused of manslaughter and negligent homicide charges. Prosecutors claimed he was driving erratically and played a role in the crash when he drifted out of his lane. But an accident reconstruction expert pointed to skid marks and other debris, showing the lead motorcyclist lost control of his bike. He was also over the legal alcohol limit. Zukovsky has been held in detention for more than three years. As the verdicts were read, he gasped and pointed up at the ceiling. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Todd Bookman. Federal officials have approved a new strategy to stretch supplies of monkeypox vaccine by changing the way doses are administered. Massachusetts health care providers are also being urged to schedule just one of two doses for people at risk. WBUR's Priyanka Dial-McCluskey reports they are responding to a national shortage of vaccine amid a growing disease outbreak. The vaccine is supposed to come in two shots 28 days apart. But state officials want to get first doses to more people. They say the second dose can wait. Dr. Brian Backoven of Fenway Health says there's a lot more demand for monkeypox vaccine than there is supply. We're getting over 600 calls a day looking for vaccinations. He says it's important to get ahead of the outbreak. Which is going to require really a bigger vaccination effort than I think we have at this point. State officials expect more vaccine supplies in the fall. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Priyanka Dale-McCluskey. 
The drought is causing Massachusetts farmers to worry they'll have fewer crops leading up to the important harvesting season. Stacy Entel works for the, it works at Heartbeats Farm in Berkeley. She blames climate change. It's happening right in your neighborhood. Like we are as farmers kind of on the front line of it, whether it's way too much water at the beginning of last year or a drought now. We're seeing it all right now. Around 40% of Massachusetts cities and towns are imposing water bans and restrictions. In sports, the Red Sox return home to Fenway tonight to host the Braves. In the forecast, mostly cloudy, slight chances, showers or thunderstorms tonight. The lows around 67 degrees. Mostly cloudy and cooler tomorrow. The highs around 76 with a chance of showers in the evening. Partly sunny with some showers on Thursday. The highs will be around 80 degrees. Right now it's 90 degrees in Boston. This is 90.9 WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station and from DataIQ, a platform for everyday AI to help organizations make AI part of their daily business. Designed to elevate people, teams, and companies. D-A-T-A-I-K-U dot com. And from Indeed, designed to be an end-to-end hiring solution for businesses of any size to attract, interview, and hire candidates, all from one place. More at Indeed.com slash NPR. And from the Lemelson Foundation. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Juana Summers in Washington. And I'm Elsa Chang in Culver City, California. The FBI's search of former President Trump's estate in Florida has been met with a barrage of attacks in conservative media. On his Westwood One radio show, Fox News host Mark Levin said this. What the uh, Biden administration did today was a shot between the eyes of this republic. On Fox News, captions declared, quote, Biden's FBI ransacks home a potential 2024 opponent, of course, referring to Donald Trump. NPR media correspondent David Folkenflik has been monitoring all of this and joins us now. Hi, David. Hey, Elsa. Hey. Okay, so just listening to those couple examples right there, it sounds sounds as if conservative media is portraying the FBI search as just like, I don't know, dirty politics from the Biden administration. Are you seeing that pretty widely from conservative outlets right now? Yeah, I'd say aside from a small handful of outfits and figures that have written off former President Trump and who have been written off by former President Trump, it's been pretty lockstep. It's been consistent. It's been uh, dire. It's been intense, at times even a little apocalyptic, even suggestive of violence. You had Buck Sexton, uh, Sexton, a popular conservative talk show host, go on Fox yesterday evening and describe it as a kind of preemptive coup. Uh, Steven Crowder, who's uh, got millions of followers on YouTube for his conservative right-wing commentaries, uh, racked up about a half million uh, by this moment uh, for something he put out about six hours ago, saying this is war. And all this stuff plays into the claims of the deep state, the idea that federal officials and uh, the bureaucracy uh, and even federal professionals who are in their own minds trying to make nonpartisan decisions and policies in place are acting against the interests of you, the right-thinking Americans and of Donald Trump. And let's be clear, President Biden has said and the White House has said he learned about all this from press reports, that he was not involved in Justice Department actions. The attorney general has repeatedly said, Merrick Garland, he's holding Biden and the White House at great arm's length on all of these investigations and no reporting has proven otherwise. Okay. well, in the middle of all this, let's talk about the most important player still in right wing media. That's Fox News. What else are you seeing on Fox at the moment? 
Well, you, you know, this came out early yesterday evening, and what you saw were the next five hours were their most popular primetime hosts, all of them opinionators, and each one after the other going after uh, the Biden administration and coming to the uh, defense of Donald Trump as a victim in your place protecting you. And let's hear what, for example, Laura Ingram had to say late last night. When we get power back, it's time to hold everyone accountable. The military leadership, the, the civilian leadership, the civil surface, those in Congress who've abused their power, all of them have to be held accountable, all of them. And let's remember that phrase, when we get power back, there's no differentiation in her mind between the Trump campaign, potentially for 2024, and folks at Fox News and the viewers. And would you say that this is all kind of expected reaction from Fox? Well, I got to say, you know, the Murdochs in recent days have guided uh, Fox News to a less uh, of an intense embrace of Trump in recent weeks. The House Select Committee on 1-6 has been so damning in what it found on Trump's actions and inaction around that day and about his lies about election fraud that you saw some distance being established <laughs> and some embrace instead of uh, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, a potential uh, competitor for Trump uh, for the Republican nomination in 2024. Instead, what you saw over the last 24 hours was a snap back into a full uh, Trump defense, even as some of their journalists did point out that, you know, this is something that would be undertaken by the Justice Department uh, only with careful review ahead of time. And that, of course, Justice Department has to lay out what its justification was for this. Right. And so, David, as we're learning more about what this search was about, I'm curious, what will you be looking for? Well, there's the question, of course, of whether future disclosures change anything in the rhetoric we see. But in reality, it's you watch this in some ways for the talking points, for the professionals in politi- politics, for those who want to support Trump or want to be right. supported by him. And also the talking points, you know, you're seeing in real time being delivered for the president, former president's rank and file supporters as they look for reasons to hold on to him ahead of the potential next White House run. That is NPR's David Folkenflik. Thank you, David. You bet. Voters in Los Angeles will elect a new mayor in November. The dominant issue in the campaign is the city's huge homelessness crisis. More than 41,000 people were unhoused at last count. And Anna Scott from member station KCRW talked to voters who are evaluating the candidates' proposed solutions. In a lot of ways, this election comes down to which candidates voters trust to solve the homelessness crisis more than any particular promises the candidates are making. For Natalie Seaman, like many voters, housing affordability and homelessness are top concerns. 30 years ago, I bought my house for $150,000 as a single woman. People have to be able to do that. Seaman plans to vote for Karen Bass, a Congress member and Democrat who once led a social justice nonprofit, but not because of anything Bass has said while running for mayor. You know, she's being very kind of middle of the road right now, but I look at her values and um, her background, and those are things that are going to drive my vote. Bass's opponent is Rick Caruso, a billionaire real estate developer and one-time Republican who registered as a Democrat less than a year ago. Caruso's supporters are just as certain that he's the one who can get the job done, like Ronald Estrada. I think a a new perspective, uh, different eyes, uh, newer ideas, and more transparency. And do you have more faith in somebody who's not part of the existing political system to fix it? At this time, I do. So what are Caruso and Bass proposing to do about the tens of thousands of people living on the streets of L.A.? Caruso's big promise is to open 30,000 new shelter beds his first year in office and ban camping on the street. 
He says he'd go to the feds and the state to pay for it, potentially hundreds of millions of dollars. He also says he'd reorganize the city budget. I asked him if he knows what he'd cut to pay for the beds. I do. I don't want to get into the details of that. Caruso's main selling point is the image L.A. residents have of him as a can-do real estate developer, an outsider to the political system that hasn't solved homelessness. And with all due respect, the mayor is a product of that system. Uh, Congresswoman Bass is a product of that system. So, of course, when you're in that system and a product of it, you're not going to be able to find solutions outside that system. It is true. He is outside of the system and has spent a lot of time building luxury housing. So why has he not built one unit of affordable housing? Karen Bass promises that she'll house or shelter 15,000 people during her first year as mayor. Though, again, she's unclear exactly where the money would come from. Bass's main selling point is her image as someone with the political connections to bring help from other levels of government and who personally cares about homelessness. I do believe that I can make a dent and I'm not going to accept that I can't. And people in the city and the county have essentially over these years worked to address and reduce the problem, but not with the fortitude of this has got to end. On a well-kept patch of grass beside the 110 freeway, Cece Smith lives in a tent. And these are my dogs here, Rocco and Papa. Given LA's severe shortage of shelter beds and affordable housing, Smith doesn't believe that any politician can quickly move tens of thousands of people indoors. You know what, they've been saying that for a while and it's not happening. To me, they all lie. <laughs> She'd love to talk to Bass or Caruso about solving homelessness, but she knows their campaigns aren't aimed at her. They're focused on L.A.'s most likely voters, those with homes. For NPR News, I'm Anna Scott in Los Angeles. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. A city in the southwest is running out of drinking water, and it's not for lack of rainfall. Las Vegas, New Mexico, is watching water rush by and fill reservoirs. But because the water is running off of a giant wildfire burn scar, it's unfit to drink. From member station KUNM, Alice Fordham reports. The Gallinas River is flowing fast and strong through the middle of Las Vegas. So it's maybe confusing that firefighter Todd Regensburg is knocking on people's doors with bad news. So I don't know if you've heard, but we're in a water shortage. He hands a piece of paper to the proprietor of a thrift store. Um, these are just some tips and ways to conserve. It recommends using paper plates to save on dishwashing and limiting flushing toilets. Um, we're trying to get everybody to just do their part and conserve in any way you can. Las Vegas's watershed was burned over in the Calf Canyon Hermit's Peak fire, the largest ever recorded in New Mexico. Firefighters managed to save the town of 13,000, but Mayor Luis Trujillo says the blackened mountainsides surrounding them are a huge problem. Everything from pine needles to logs and boulders and trees coming down uh, from the burn scars into the river. So the river has been rendered unusable because our current filtration system cannot handle the heaviness. Two of the town's three reservoirs are contaminated by ash. That leaves one. It's got about six weeks' worth of water in, less every day. It's painful because part of what made the fire so severe was drought in this region. Rain should be a relief. So the irony is it's been pouring every day, and, you know, the water in the river is flowing bank to bank, and we're not able to use any of that water at this point. 
The state of New Mexico has declared an emergency here and has fronted more than $2 million to hire a company to provide what's called pre-treatment services for the water for about a year. The plan is that the water would be taken from one of the contaminated reservoirs, Story Lake, and filtered enough that it could go into the regular municipal water treatment system. But it'll take a while, and meantime, the drought restrictions are arduous. If we have to go to, like, plasticware and... um the plastic plates and water bottles, we're probably going to have to charge for that. Elizabeth Sandoval manages a famous local restaurant, the Spick and Span. She worries out-of-state visitors aren't going to get it. So if they don't know what's going on and they see like an extra like $5 or whatever on their ticket, they're going to be like, well, what's this? And they come to the restaurant and they have plasticware and paper plates. That's going to be a challenge too. But like most people here, she says she'll do whatever she can to save the water they still have. At the fire station, Fabian Duran apologizes for the trucks. They're not allowed to wash them. They're really dirty. <laughs> we try to leave them out in the rain. <laughs> Firefighters have switched focus from attacking flames to preparing for rescues from the swollen river. Training today, they're strapping on life vests and throwing ropes. All right, throwing back. And several nights a week, Fire Chief Stephen Spann goes out on flood watch, keeping an eye on surges. You don't see it coming at first, you just hear kind of this rumble. And then here comes the surge, and it just taller, deeper, and then you start seeing the foam and the bubbles from it. Tree debris coming down, you see the water getting a little bit darker from all the ash and soot. He says a prayer every time that this river, which is usually the lifeblood of the city, doesn't hurt anyone as the contaminated swell hurtles onto the bridge. For NPR News, I'm Alice Fordham in Las Vegas, New Mexico. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBURN, WBUR.org. Good afternoon, I'm Steve Brown. 90 degrees at 5 Ahead on WBUR's All Things Considered, remembering Motown songwriter Lamont Dozier, who died at the age of 81. Dozier co-wrote dozens of hits, including Stop in the Name of Love and Heat Wave. In the forecast, our heat wave is about to break, mostly cloudy with a slight chance of showers or thunderstorms tonight. The lows will be around 67 degrees. Mostly cloudy and cooler tomorrow. The high is around 76 with a chance of showers in the evening. Partly sunny with some showers on Thursday. The high is around 80. Partly sunny and 79 degrees on Friday. Weekend looks nice. It'll be sunny during the day. Highs will be in the low to mid-80s. Today on The Daily, a look at the bill passed by Senate Democrats that makes historic investments to fight climate change and lower the cost of prescription drugs. We look at how the bill happened and what it actually means for regular Americans. I'm Michael Barbaro. That's today on The Daily from The New York Times. Tonight at 8 on WBUR. WBUR supporters include Eversource. Energy is at the center of how we live today, and with global energy prices increasing, the impact to families can be significant. Eversource may be able to help with their flexible payment plan options. For more information and to see if you qualify, visit Eversource.com. 
From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Juana Summers. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly. This month, one year ago, Afghanistan fell to the Taliban. It marked a chaotic end to the 20-year U.S. war in that country. Back around the time that war began, author and journalist Ahmed Rashid had written a book titled Taliban, which became for many a defining text, maybe the defining text on the militant group. Well, Rashid has now written a new foreword to the book in which he says, quote, the fighters who captured Kabul in 2021 were of a different breed. So we called him to reflect on this past year of Taliban rule again in Afghanistan and to ask how the group has changed in these past two decades. The first wave of Taliban, as it were, were really ignorant of the world. They didn't understand the way politics works, the way the world works, uh, their responsibilities that they now control the country, they control the government, and they have responsibilities. All they were interested in was pursuing their own religious agenda, which was that everyone had to be converted to their interpretation of Islam. They still pursue the same agenda, except with a difference. It's, it's much harsher now. They understand their responsibilities. They are now heads of state, and they're running a country, and they understand that they have to keep the population down, they have to make sure that, you know, we don't see a rioting going on in Kabul, anti-Taliban movement going on on our TV screens. How damaging is it to the Taliban's authority, their legitimacy? Um, this latest twist that the leader of al-Qaeda, Ayman al-Zawahiri, turned up living in Kabul until the U.S. drone strike killed him last week. Yes, well, I mean, that, that has been a public relations disaster for the Taliban. But it should be remembered that Al-Qaeda has always had a very close relationship with the Taliban. And, of course, now it makes it very difficult for the UN, for uh, the Americans, for the Europeans to outrightly offer the Taliban recognition of their government or provide them with money and help. I was talking about this with uh, National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan, the U.S. National Security Advisor at the White House. And I, um, I want to play you a little bit of our exchange and see whether you agree, whether you think what he's saying is plausible. I asked him if the Taliban definitely knew. Ayman al-Zawahiri was in Kabul. Here's what he said. We believe that senior members of the Haqqani Network, who are now part of the Taliban entity running the government in Kabul, that, um, that they knew. We also believe that there were other senior Taliban officials who did not know. And in fact, uh, you know, we will now watch to see the extent to which this raises questions within the organization of the Taliban about the wisdom of having Zawahiri come back into Kabul. Oh, interesting. So you're watching for possible fractures or divisions in the Taliban? Yeah, I don't want to go this. so far as to say fracture, but you know, certainly this is going to raise some eyebrows, we believe, uh, within the leadership. Ahmed Rashid, what do you think? Is this raising some eyebrows? Do you see any sign of divisions in Taliban leadership? Well, this is very similar to what happened in 1996 when Osama bin Laden came down to Kandahar and was hosted by the Taliban leader, Mullah Omar. A lot of Taliban leaders were opposed to it, and uh, they were very strongly opposed to it. But uh, they allowed Mullah Omar, because he was the supreme leader, they allowed him to carry on doing what he was doing. So we're seeing a repeat of that now, uh, with certainly some of the more hardline Taliban, like Haqqani Network, favoring extremist terrorists from uh, other countries. So yes, there, there will be a division, but it will not lead to any chaos. Or 
unrest within the Taliban because the Taliban are supremely disciplined. They follow their leader, come what may, and they know that if they clash with the leader in the open, they'll be got rid of. Hmm. Well, given all that, elaborate on the final thought in the new forward to your book. You write, and I'm going to quote, unless the Taliban are prepared to moderate their policies, improve upon their earlier attempt at governance, and become more people-friendly, Afghanistan will remain the fulcrum of unrest and turbulence in Central Asia for years to come. Do you see any sign the Taliban are prepared to do any of that? Well, unfortunately, at the moment, quite frankly, no. As long as they have sources of income, they're able to keep thousands of young people armed and ready to fight. They haven't changed their ideological beliefs, their religious beliefs, which are very extreme and are not acceptable to most Afghans, and especially Afghans from different ethnic groups. So, uh, quite frankly, it, it's a very depressing situation. One thing the Taliban is not going to do is to come under Western pressure and admit to, for example, girls' education or something like that, uh, which, which they see as a direct threat to their uh, ideology and their hegemonic control of uh, the situation. That is Ahmed Rashid, journalist and author of the book, Taliban. Thank you so much, as always, for your insight. Thank you very much. Songwriter Lamont Dozier has died. Along with Brian and Eddie Holland, Dozier helped define the Motown sound with dozens of hits like Stop in the Name of Love and Heat Wave. NPR's Elizabeth Blair has this appreciation. Barry Gordy structured Motown like a Ford assembly line. One of its most prized song designers was Holland Dozier Holland. The trio wrote songs for the Four Tops. Baby, I need your love. Marvin Gaye and the Supremes Lamont Dozier grew up in Detroit. He sang in church, and he liked to write. In 2004, he told NPR it was an elementary school teacher who encouraged him to keep at it. She thought it was very astute of me to have such a feel for uh, words and stuff. So I started to put these words to music by the time I was like 12 or 13. By the time Dozier was 15, he was singing in his own doo-wop group. After leaving Motown, he recorded as a solo artist. I'm out here stories, his voice, and the arrangements. There's none better, I think. Ken Knox is singer with Chairman of the Board, another group that Holland Dozier Holland wrote songs for and produced. Give me just a little more time. Eargasm all the way. Those three guys writing were like, they're the kings. Holland Dozier Holland was inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame and won the Johnny Mercer Lifetime Achievement Award. Lamont Dozier eventually parted ways with the Holland brothers. He went on to write songs for other artists, including Phil Collins, with whom he won a Grammy Award in 1988.
You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Avast, a global cybersecurity company with more than 435 million users. Avast is dedicated to helping people take control of their safety and privacy online. Learn more at avast.com. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Metamucil, a fiber supplement containing psyllium, a plant-based fiber for trapping and removing waste in the digestive system. Designed to be taken every day. More at metamucil.com. And from Workday, committed to helping organizations adapt to change, using real-time data to uncover insights, stay decision-ready, and prepare for whatever's next. The finance, HR, and planning system for a changing world. This is 90.9 WBUR and WBUR.org, 90 degrees in Boston at just a minute before 6 o'clock. Four Muslim men in Albuquerque, New Mexico, have been killed since November. Police believe their deaths are connected. The Muslim community is shaken. People have been very reluctant to attend prayer services. They have isolated themselves to the home, probably not traveling at night. A community in fear and in mourning. Tomorrow on Morning Edition from NPR News. Tomorrow morning at 5 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR News Station. I'm WBUR City Space Director Amy McDonald, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Booster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. This is unprecedented in the history of our country that uh, the uh, Biden administration is doing this. The FBI executed a search at former President Trump's Mar-a-Lago resort yesterday, drawing anger from his supporters. It's Tuesday, August 9th. This is WBUR's All Things Considered. Good evening, I'm Steve Brown. Coming up, we'll have the latest on yesterday's FBI search of Donald Trump's Florida home. Also, we'll hear from the lead researcher of the new If When Now report about what the group found when looking back at cases that criminalized self-managed abortions since the year 2000. And fuel shortages have forced many Sri Lankans to ditch their cars and cycle instead. Colombo's mayor unveiled new bike paths. Doctors environmentalists call it a silver lining, but will it last? It's 6.01, now this news. Live from NPR News, I'm Janine Herbst. President Biden today signed the official paperwork for the U.S. approval for Finland and Sweden to join the NATO treaty. In brief remarks, Biden says the two new members will make the alliance stronger than ever in the face of the war in Ukraine started by Russia. Sweden and Finland have strong democratic institutions, strong militaries, and strong and transparent economies. They'll meet every NATO requirement we're confident of that. The U.S. was the 23rd of the 30-member alliance to sign off on the expansion. Biden urged remaining allies to wrap up their approval processes. In Palm Beach, Florida, supporters of former President Trump waved flags and waved at passing cars on a causeway near Mar-a-Lago once again today. And Greg Allen has more from Palm Beach. 
Trump loyalists began gathering Monday after the former president said his private club and part-time home had been raided by federal agents. Erica Wong is originally from China and says she knocked on 3,000 doors canvassing for Trump in the 2020 election. Now she's part of a group that drove from Orlando and stayed overnight on the Palm Beach Causeway. Because we want to uh, support Trump, who's in very darkness timing for, for him. He's rescuing our country. We love him. Many here say they believe President Biden knew about the raid and targeted Trump to hurt his possible presidential run in 2024. White House officials say Biden was unaware of the raid beforehand. Greg Allen, NPR News, Palm Beach, Florida. Meanwhile, a federal appeals court today ruled the House and Ways and Means Committee can obtain the tax returns that former President Trump has fought for years to shield from Democratic lawmakers and the public. A three-judge panel for the D.C. Court, Circuit Court of Appeals says the committee's request served a valid legislative purpose and wasn't retaliatory, as Trump has argued. The committee successfully argued the tax returns are necessary to determine whether to make changes to the presidential audit program. Four states are holding primary elections today. And Pierce Giles Snyder has more on the key races ahead of November's midterm elections. The most closely watched contests are in Wisconsin, where Republicans are choosing a nominee to run against Democratic Governor Tony Evers, and Democrats are choosing a challenger to run against Republican Senator Ron Johnson. Lieutenant Governor Mandela Barnes is the favorite after his top rivals dropped out. Voters are also going to the polls in Minnesota, where Congresswoman Ilhan Omar is facing a primary challenge. In Connecticut, Republicans are picking a challenger to face Democratic Senator Richard Blumenthal. And with Democratic Congressman Peter Welch running for the Senate, there's an open house seat in Vermont, which has never sent a woman to Congress. The top Democratic rivals are women. The winner will be the favorite in November. Trial Snyder, NPR News. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Good evening. I'm Steve Brown in Boston. A West Springfield, Massachusetts truck driver is being released from jail after a jury today found him not guilty of all charges in connection with the deaths of seven motorcyclists back in a 2019 crash in Randolph, New Hampshire. New Hampshire jurors returned their verdict for Vladimir Zukovsky this afternoon after just three hours of deliberation. Prosecutor John McCormick said he's disappointed. We uh, litigated hard. We didn't get all the rulings we wanted, but we, we litigated it hard. We respect the court's decision. We respect the jury's decisions. Zukovsky's public defenders argued it was the lead motorcyclist who was impaired and caused the crash. Earlier in the trial, the judge dismissed impairment charges against Zukovsky. More than 1,000 jobs within Boston public schools are unfilled with a new school year right around the corner. The superintendent's office says the positions are full and part-time and that 6% of teacher jobs are currently vacant. Mayor Michelle Wu says she's working with incoming school superintendent Mary Skipper to make sure the district is active in recruiting and hiring new staff. We will have some announcements fairly soon about some major leadership positions that are being filled and um, they're working every day to make sure that from the bus drivers to the paraprofessionals that we will be staffed up and ready to go for the beginning of the school year. The first day of school in Boston is exactly a month from today. The official path of historic sites in Salem is getting a facelift. The Salem Heritage Trail traces from the famous Witch House to the old Burying Point Cemetery to the House of Seven Gables. 
Kate Fox is with the Visitors Bureau Destination Salem. She says the city is repainting the trail gold. It's also installing interpretive markers to help tourists better engage with Salem's immigrant and indi- indigenous p- history. A lot of people don't necessarily know why they're coming to Salem other than they recognize Salem Witch. And we hope the trail is going to be an opportunity for visitors to dive a little bit deeper. Fox says the project should be complete late next year. Red Sox pitcher Chris Sale will not be back this season, but it's not because of the finger he broke during a game against the Yankees last month. The team announced today the left-hander fell off his bicycle over the weekend and broke his right wrist. Sale had a ribcage injury earlier this season and has been trying to make a comeback after Tommy John's surgery. Red Sox are at Fenway tonight to host the Braves. The forecast mostly cloudy, slight chance of showers or thunderstorms tonight. The lows will be around 67 degrees. Right now it's 90 degrees in Boston. This is WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation, supporting those working towards a day when no one has to choose between paying rent, putting food on the table, and protecting their health and the health of others. RWJF.org. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Juana Summers in Washington. And I'm Elsa Chang in Culver City, California. It has been a day now since FBI agents conducted a search at former President Trump's Mar-a-Lago club and residence in Florida. Trump and his allies have lashed out at the Justice Department and the FBI over the move. NPR Justice correspondent Ryan Lucas has been following all of this and joins us now with the latest. Hi, Ryan. Hey there, Elsa. Okay, so I realize the dust is still settling from this FBI search, but can you just bring us up to speed? here on what we know so far at this point. Well, we know that FBI agents carried out this court-authorized search yesterday at Trump's Palm Beach uh, Club and Residence, Mar-a-Lago. Trump said in a statement that during the search, the agents got into a safe that he has there. Now, Trump was not in Florida when this happened. He was in New York. Uh, His son Eric was with him yesterday, and he says he got a call that the search was happening. Uh, Here's a bit of what Eric Trump told Fox News' Sean Hannity. The purpose of the raid, from what they said, was because the National Archives wanted to, you know, corroborate uh, whether or not Donald Trump had any documents in his possession. Now, the FBI and the Justice Department are not commenting, but we know that back in February, the DOJ began investigating uh, the possible mishandling of government secrets after the National Archives retrieved White House records, 15 boxes of them, uh, that had wound up at Mar-a-Lago after Trump left office. Some of the materials in there, the archives say, was marked uh, as classified national security information. Interesting. Okay, so I want to ask about some of the language we've been hearing from Trump. He has called this FBI search a, quote, weaponization of the justice system. And Mm -hmm. now his Republican allies are saying similar things. But Ryan, let's be very clear here. The FBI would have had to take very specific legal steps before they could even begin conducting a search like this, right? That's right. The FBI would have had to get a warrant from a federal judge to do this. Uh, Investigators would have had to go to the court and show that there was probable cause to believe that a crime had been committed and that evidence of that crime was where they wanted to search. So in this instance, at Mar-a-Lago. Even before the FBI tasted to a judge, though, something like this, searching a former president's home, would likely have had to have been approved by officials uh, at the highest highest levels of the Justice Department. Uh, The department is not commenting on whether the Attorney General uh, Merrick Garland himself signed off on this. All of that said, though, this FBI search does not mean that Donald Trump is on the verge of being indicted. It's important to remember that. And it also doesn't mean that he necessarily ever will be charged here. 
Still, this is a very big step searching the home of a former president. A big step um, because the legal stakes here could be so high. But, you know, Ryan, there are also big political consequences here potentially, right? Can you talk about that piece of all this? Well, right. For, for years now, Trump has claimed that he's been unfairly targeted by the FBI and the DOJ. Remember, he calls the investigation into ties between his 2016 campaign and Russia a witch hunt. He's called mm-hmm. it that way for years. Already with this Mar-a-Lago search, he's claiming he's being persecuted again, that Democrats are trying to prevent him from running for president again. But bear in mind, the director of the FBI is Christopher Wray, a man who Trump himself appointed. Uh, but Trump and his allies are condemning this search anyways. They, like Trump, are claiming that the, that the DOJ is being weaponized. House Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy, who is uh, likely to be speaker if Republicans win in the midterm elections, uh, he's promising to investigate the Justice Department. And hanging over all of this, of course, as I've as I've mentioned, is the possibility that Trump will decide to run again for president. Right. Okay. so this investigation into the potential mishandling of classified documents, it's not the only legal jeopardy that Trump's facing right now. Like there's also the investigation to January 6th. Just round it up. What else is he facing at this point legally? Right. The big one on people's minds relates to January 6th, to the attack on the Capitol that day, and then the scheme to put forward a, a slate of fake uh, fake electors. We know that two senior aides to former Vice President Mike Pence have testified before a grand jury here in Washington, D.C. The grand jury is also expecting to hear from former Trump White House counsel Pat Cipollone. Uh, then there's a district attorney in Georgia who is investigating efforts to overturn Trump's loss in that state in the 2020 election. Uh, the New York State Attorney General have a civil investigation underway into Trump's business practices. And then on the congressional front, of course, there's the House Select Committee's investigation into into January 6th. Uh, But the investigation now into the boxes of White House records and how they ended up at Mar-a-Lago, that's one that's flown under the radar for a while. It, though, has now moved uh, front and center with this FBI search. That is NPR's Ryan Lucas. Thank you, Ryan. Thank you. As we just heard, the Justice Department has not yet publicly commented on the FBI's search of Donald Trump's Mar-a-Lago home. There have been calls for DOJ to issue some sort of statement. Let's hear more now from a former Trump Justice Department official. Sarah Isker was the director of DOJ's Office of Public Affairs, and she is now the co-host of the legal podcast Advisory Opinions. Hey, Sarah, thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. Can you offer us a little bit more insight into why you think that this Justice Department has so far been tight-lipped on what's going on here? Uh, It's absolutely the procedure of the Department of Justice not to comment on, confirm, or deny ongoing investigations. That doesn't, of course, mean the department doesn't take steps like executing a search warrant that are seen publicly. Uh, But even at that point, you don't comment on it because imagine a situation uh, where the department says, well, we think this person committed a crime. It would upend someone's life. And then what if they don't find any evidence of a crime? Or what if they find some evidence, but not enough to sustain a prosecution? Or they simply don't have the resources to pursue it, even though they believe the person is guilty. This is why the department only uses its, its court appearances to make public statements about ongoing investigations. On Twitter, you pointed out that former President Trump could take a step and release a copy of the warrant whenever he chooses. So I wonder, to your mind, does the DOJ undermine its credibility if details don't come out? Or is the onus on former President Trump to make details known if he really thinks, as Ryan Lucas has reported, that there was not a good enough reason for the FBI to have executed this search? I am surprised if all that warrant says is that they are executing a search for potentially classified documents and then the statutory citation for the mishandling of classified documents that the former president hasn't released that copy of the cover page of the warrant. Hmm. Um, it, it, 
obviously then makes us wonder whether there is other statutory citations there or other things that uh, potentially were listed in the warrant. Um, but, you know, the department, again, not commenting on it, is exactly along the lines that the department has, has held for decades now. It is up to the person who is being investigated at that point. They get to speak. They get to have their day. They can release the warrant. They cannot release the warrant. The department will speak when they go into court for the first time if they indict someone. The former president and his team have said they did not get a heads up that this raid was coming ahead of yesterday. But given what we know about the department's previous probe of Trump's documents and handling of government secrets, do you think that this search warrant should have come as a surprise? I mean, I am surprised because we know about this meeting in June where the department was meeting with Trump's lawyers about this very topic, where Trump had been keeping those boxes before the FBI came to pick them up and they were returned to the National Archives. That would undermine any warrant um, about uh, you know, potentially the destruction of materials where they would need a warrant rather than a subpoena, rather than you know asking nicely, um, which again makes me wonder what exactly is in that warrant? Uh, because if anything, that would have undermined DOJ's evidence in that affidavit to support the warrant. Uh, I want to ask you about the politics a little bit here. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis is among those who support the former president's accusation that this raid was a, quote, weaponization of the government against former President Trump. Now, given that we do not yet know what was in the FBI's warrant, to your mind, is that a fair characterization? No, because neither side should particularly be jumping to any political conclusion until we actually know what this is about. Of course, as others have pointed out, uh, for Republicans to say they no longer care about the mishandling of classified information, that would come as news to Hillary Clinton and her campaign, of course. Um, and at the same time, you know, this idea that because someone held public office, even the highest public office in the land, that they're somehow immune from investigation or prosecution, uh, that's not the United States of America. That's not the rule of law. The other can be true, too, though, which is if you are going to investigate a former president to potentially bring charges against a former president, it better be real. It better be serious. They better have something. Uh, and I think we will find that out in the coming days and weeks. As you just heard NPR's Ryan Lucas tell us, this is still a very big and unprecedented step by the FBI. And some conservatives, including House Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy, are blasting this. How do you think that this is going to impact the standing, the reputation of the Justice Department, which has already seen its fair share of criticism, both when you were there during the Mueller investigation into Russian election interference, as well as criticism right now? That's exactly right. Obviously, the Department of Justice, the FBI, has become the focus of a political firestorm on both sides since James Comey first held that press conference about Hillary Clinton. And it's why I think both people shouldn't presume that the department did everything right here. People also shouldn't presume the department did everything wrong. You know, we have an inspector general report into the crossfire hurricane investigation, which is what the investigation into and Donald Trump. We should Trump. just clarify here that that's the internal code name for the FBI investigation into Russian election meddling, just so listeners are clear. Go ahead. That's right. Uh, and that found several really serious errors in the FISA process, including a lawyer who fabricated evidence to include in a warrant uh, into an American citizen. So obviously the FBI has made mistakes. They've brought some of this attention and opprobrium onto themselves. At the same time, the FBI is an incredible group of men and women, uh, and the Department of Justice uh, is the shining example to the rest of the world 
they do make mistakes, but they also get a lot right. Sarah, in about the last 30 seconds we have left here, I'd like to ask you, in your view, how is this all, given the the limited amount of detail we have now, how is this all going to play out with voters during the midterm elections? Well, I think that'll depend a lot on what the Department of Justice was looking for and what evidence they actually had to go looking for it. Uh, I think at this moment, it is um, uh, Republicans have a lot of momentum on their side heading into the midterm elections, and this will further solidify Donald Trump as the leader of the party if they believe he's being targeted mm-hmm. by the other side. On the other hand, let's see what the department has. All right. Sarah Isker was the director of the Office of Public Affairs at the Department of Justice under former President Trump. Thanks for being here. Thank you. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR and WBUR.org, 89 degrees in Boston at 619. Ahead on All Things Considered, fuel shortages have forced many Sri Lankans to ditch their cars and cycle instead. That's ahead here on WBUR. In business news, a Boston-based food robotics startup is reporting it's raised nearly $7 million in new funding. Company Dexai Robotics makes a robot that can do food preparation. The company launched in 2018. It says its technology is meant to help the restaurant industry address a labor shortage that has worsened in the pandemic. On Wall Street, stocks were down today. The Dow finished down 56 points, closing at 32,776. NASDAQ fell 151 points at 12,494. And the S&P 500 down 17 points, closing at 4,123. Marketplace comes up in about 10 minutes with all the day's business news. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Xfinity Internet, committed to delivering Internet service over a gig, designed to power your devices while fitting your budget. More at Xfinity.com gig. And Backbay Life Science Advisors, executing M&A, licensing, and partnering for biopharma, medtech, and health tech around the world. BBLSA.com. Check out WBUR's recommendations for summer books with a New England twist. Sign up for our pop-up newsletter at WBUR.org slash beachbooks. In the forecast, mostly cloudy with a slight chance of showers or thunderstorms tonight. The lows will be around 67, mostly cloudy and cooler tomorrow. WBUR supporters include Eversource. Energy is at the center of how we live today. And with global energy prices increasing, the impact to families can be significant. Eversource may be able to help with their flexible payment plan options. For information and to see if you qualify, visit Eversource.com. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Juana Summers. And I'm Ari Shapiro. Since the Supreme Court struck down the constitutional right to end a pregnancy, demand for abortion pills has soared. In some states, using those pills or helping others could be grounds for prosecution. A new report says even before the Dobbs ruling, prosecutors were already going after people for self-managed abortion. Laura Huss is the lead author of the report. She's with If When How, a legal organization that supports abortion rights. Welcome to All Things Considered. Thank you so much for having me, Ari. So in this report, you looked at investigations and prosecutions going back to the year 2000. And what did you find? 
For the last two years, I've been leading this research um, where we've documented 61 cases between the years 2000 and 2020, where people have been criminally investigated or arrested for allegedly self-managing their own abortions or helping someone else do so. Preliminary research from this report found that among data available, the majority of people who were criminalized self-managed exclusively with medication abortion mm -hmm. and were living in poverty. People of color were disproportionately represented when compared to the larger population. And 74% of the adult cases involved the criminalization of the person for self-managing their own abortion, whereas 26% involved people helping others self-manage. And tell us about the laws that prosecutors used, because you found that many prosecutors uh, prosecuted folks under statutes that don't necessarily focus on abortion specifically. In fact, a very small number of states specifically have laws limiting self-managed abortion. So what were some examples of laws that prosecutors used? So today, only Oklahoma, Nevada, and South Carolina still have laws on their books that criminalize self-managed abortion. But cases in our research occurred in 26 states. So what this means is that overzealous prosecutors and police misapply applied criminal laws to arrest people. Tell us some of the laws they used. What we've seen is that laws meant to address the mishandling of human remains, concealment of a birth, practicing medicine without a license, child abuse and assault, and murder and homicide were all misapplied to allegations of self-managed abortion. Many states, even before the Dobbs ruling, did have limitations on abortion, like late-term abortions or illegal in many states. And so if somebody did a self-managed abortion, ended a pregnancy at home, like in the second or third trimester, shouldn't a prosecutor be able to investigate and charge them for that if it violates state law regulating abortion? So in our research, we did find that among the cases where gestational age was mentioned, the vast majority of criminalized cases involve people in their second or third trimesters. But we as an organization think it's very important that people who have abortions later in pregnancy are not stigmatized and have support when and where they need it. It's one thing to be investigated or arrested. It's another to be convicted. What were the typical outcomes in these cases? In these cases, the vast majority led to an arrest. Um, of those, uh, and the vast majority proceeded through the criminal court process. Most cases ended with a guilty plea. Um, but then about a quarter were dropped or dismissed by either the prosecutor or the court, uh, really affirming the way in which advocates can challenge charges when they're misapplied. Um, but whether they were convicted or not, several people lost custody of their children temporarily or permanently. But then criminalization also led to people being shamed and ostracized in their communities, including needing to move due to threats at their homes or changing their names because they were unable to get or keep jobs. You've looked at the last 20 years and found more than 60 examples of people being prosecuted for self-managed abortions. That was under Roe and Casey. What do you expect the next 20 years to look like just in terms of numbers? Concrete numbers, I can't project. But what we've known is that new cases will continue to happen. So we're likely to see more and more cases of abortion criminalization. Um, and the cases from the last 20 years show us what happens when racist and unjust systems take hold of abortion legality. Laura Huss of the group If, When, How, Lawyering for Reproductive Justice. She is the lead author of a new report on criminalization of self-managed abortions. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me.
Sri Lanka is suffering its worst-ever economic crisis. There are rolling blackouts, food shortages, and fuel rationing. But doctors and environmentalists say there may be one unexpected benefit, as NPR's Lauren Freyer reports from the capital, Colombo. M. Fernando used to catch a bus to his job as a security guard at a luxury hotel. But this spring, Sri Lanka ran out of U.S. dollars, struggled to buy fuel on international markets, and basically ran out of gasoline. Inflation spiked. And suddenly, even public transit became a stretch for Fernando's budget. Train and bus, very expensive. Yeah. Bicycle is free. Yeah, free. My, my feet are good. <laughs> So now 61-year-old Fernando cycles to work. His hotel actually gave him a bike. My uh, office, it helped. Your office helped you Yeah, bike. Yes, yes. Every day you come to work. It allows you to get to work. Yes, madam. It's unclear just how many Sri Lankans like Fernando have switched to cycling in recent months. Bike salesman Asanka Prabhat says his phone is ringing off the hook. Which would be good for business, except there's a problem. No bicycles? <coughs> no. You've run out? stock, no stock. He's out of stock. Sri Lanka's foreign currency crunch? Well, it affects bicycles, too. Because most of the fancy mountain bikes Prabhat sells come from abroad. And these days, it's much more expensive, if not impossible, to import anything to Sri Lanka. Now, there is one place where a shortage of imported bikes looks like an opportunity. Because the power cuts, we have the generator running at the moment. Oh, that's what this noise is? Yeah. This is a massive place. Like I Sri Lanka's biggest like domestic bike factory. Manager Azim Miflal says his third-generation family business had almost gone bust, laid off almost all of its staff. But now he's hiring them back to try to double production to almost half a million bikes this year. He shows me his bestseller, a simple gearless cruiser with fenders. Ooh, I like the purple ones. Yeah. More of a city bike, okay. and then we're looking at the traditional bike. Mayflal says Shimano gears and disc brakes are out. Simple, easy-to-repair bikes are in. Now, all of this is great news to Asela Abedira, a Sri Lankan doctor who's been preaching the health benefits of cycling to his countrymen for years. But he had trouble convincing them. There's a famous song, Bicycle is the Vehicle of Poor Man. That song affected the society not to cycle. Now it's changed. So much so that Colombo's mayor recently inaugurated new bike paths across the city. Because it's not the most bike-friendly place, Dr. Abira acknowledges. Those who are starting cycling, this is very challenging. Yeah, I mean, there's a train right here passing on one side. There's a bus on the other. Um, you know, it's, it's not a beginner's cyclist. And yet that same Colombo Coastal Highway is where I met M. Fernando, the first time cyclist riding his bike to the hotel where he works. He has had what he calls a few incidents with motorists. Two incidents. Uh, yeah, uh, oh, you have a scar uh, here. Uh, small damage. But he keeps pedaling to get to work, to keep his job, to just keep going, which is what all Sri Lankans are trying to do right now. Lauren Freyer, NPR News in Colombo, Sri Lanka. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. 
And this is 90.9 WBURN, WBUR.org. Good evening, I'm Steve Brown. 89 degrees in Boston at 629. Coming up next at 630 on WBUR, it's Marketplace with all the day's business news. In the forecast, mostly cloudy with a slight chance of some showers or thunderstorms tonight. The lows will be around 67 degrees. Mostly cloudy, cooler tomorrow. The highs will be around 76. WBUR supporters include Eversource. Energy is at the center of how we live today. And with global energy prices increasing, the impact to families can be significant. Eversource may be able to help with their flexible payment plan options. For information and to see if you qualify, visit Eversource.com.